One of the uh, the big things that I learned over the years is um, that there's many different ways to um, to describe something. I had a um, philosophy professor that uh, first philosophy class I ever took. He took a chair and he set it on the desk, and uh, he asked the question, "Is this chair really here?" Now, for you know, for all of us uh, in the class and everything, it was kind of a ludicrous question. You know, you get up there and, you know, it's just like, oh, of course it is. And uh, that was the first instinct all of us had and everything. And, you know, somebody started getting up and he goes, no, 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 sit down. Because I need you to prove that this chair, that this chair is really here. And um, at, the, at this point, the discussion started going down the process of how is it, uh, you know, what is it we can describe. So we end, that's what we first ended up doing. We first described the chair. And um, everybody worked together and everything to describe the chair from various different perspectives and everything, you know, particularly with, the, uh, with his encouragement and everything. And some people came up with different ways to describe it in ways that uh, we hadn't anticipated. Some of us disagreed with some of the ways to describe it and everything. But in a general sense, um, you know, the, the consensus belief, or at least from my perspective, the idea and notion of a consensus belief and everything was that that chair was really there. We had no way of physically being able to touch it and feel it. Um, but with the, um, the absence of that stimulus and everything, from a physical perspective, from a visual perspective, that chair was really there. Now, you know, enter a couple years later and everything, where I ended up experiencing, you know, what's, uh, what's known as hallucination and everything. Now, I can tell you, you know, that that chair was really there. I mean, we can go up and touch it and feel it and do everything that we wanted to in theory, but we never did. You know, so it was a type of thing that uh, we never had the opportunity to actually go through and prove in, in, invariably that that chair that was there. It was just taken for granted that it was there um, because we all observed it. It was predictable in nature and that kind of stuff and all this other stuff. And uh, in, in essence, you know, we were sitting down in a chair and because we were sitting down in a chair that was like the one that he put up on the desk and everything, therefore that chair was there and everything. You know, now here's here's the thing. All of these rational um, arguments, you know, to the support of something and everything, um, is a way to, if anything, um, come to a collective agreement and everything, but still, it's self-validating. It's a self-validating belief system and everything that's actually created. And here's why. You can take hallucin hallucinogenic, and... Um, you can ask yourself the same question when you see something, particularly something that you're fully aware that somebody else cannot see. Um, you know, is it really there? The answer is no. I mean, if you're rational, rationally minded and everything, you tend to believe that no, it's not there. Um, but uh, if you're, if you actually experience something while others are seeing it as well, particularly when you're actually, uh, you're all engaging in hallucinogenics and everything. Now, what happens to that answer? It can, tends to get clouded. You know, um, you get into mass hysteria and concepts of, uh, of mass hallucination and mass hypnosis and that kind of stuff, but that doesn't diminish the fact that you still shared something. Despite the fact that it was still an induced state, the fact of the matter was, it still happened. Now, take this and scale it back just a little bit. When you take that hallucinogenic, 
And let's say that uh, you see things, you smell things, and to some degree, you can verify things are physically there. Now, for one reason or another, somebody else isn't around to actually prove or disprove it. Now, here's a question. Was it really there? Now, you know that the, you, you've actually got a substance in you that's actually manipulating your senses and everything, but the simple fact of the matter is, through all your tactile methods of being able to discern whether or not something is really there, um, for you, you've proven it beyond a shadow of a doubt and everything that that thing was real and everything. Now, you recognize that uh, there could be um, some mitigating constraints and everything, some, some mitigating circumstances, I should say, that uh, are responsible for causing that, um, that perception and everything, but it doesn't necessarily invalidate the perception. It just basically, it basically begs the question, what were you, were you experiencing? Now, as I'm playing... Um, you know, within the simulated world and everything, I'm seeing it expand on a regular basis. Now, as a programmer, um, for years, um, I've looked at things and just understood things, and I readily recognize that there can be some great programmers out there that could be responsible for actually presenting the things that I'm saying. Um, but there's only so much that can go on. And uh, I'm I'm looking at this, you know. We'll put it this way: um, if what I'm seeing, you know, at least in this world and everything, is done by a programmer, that also means the things that I'm seeing in the real world could be potentially done by other programmers as well. And it also means, you know, for me, um, that, uh, you know, with proper education and experience and self-training and everything, you have the capability to be able to achieve those things yourself. So, you know, here's the thing. Sure, you know, you can use the dismissive arguments and everything about these possibilities, but in any case, um, I make it a fact, too, on a... hold on a second. Okay, so as I was saying... Um, I had this assertion, um, possibility, that uh, back when Columbus ended up uh, going to discover America, um, that uh, he was actually, because of his belief system and everything, responsible for creating it. So, let's say the evidence mounted that there was something else out there, um, and I do like an air quote, out there, and uh, let's say that the evidence mounted that, there, that the world was spherical, uh, maybe he read trade periodicals and that kind of stuff at the time, to lead him to believe that the that the planet was uh, spherical, not uh, flat. Um, let's say there was evidence out there that uh, you know through navigation, that kind of stuff, that he was presented with, where people would approach him on occasion and everything, and say, "Well, look at those stars and everything. They tend to move in a uniform way," and um, that in itself also presented the possibility, you know, that the world was spherical. And um, let's say through simple belief and everything that uh, that the world was round, um, the world was flat prior to his belief assertion at that point that he because he believed it so strongly um, that belief ended up causing a fundamental shift in reality itself and actually ended up uh, the world ended up coming from a flat planet to a spherical world and everything 
all because of his belief, you know. So when he actually ended up going to travel off the edge, he knew he wouldn't fall off the edge because he had 100% faith in, in what he was doing and everything. And at that point, he ended up discovering, you know, flat out exactly what he believed anyways. You know, he had, he had enough information behind him and everything that that belief literally shaped the world. Now... That's um you know that's that's basically letting the belief system lead you and everything. Now there's a you know the so let's say it was flat beforehand, and all this evidence and everything comes at him in a highly calculated way, and um, you know the real person to actually discover the um, Americas and everything was Leif Erikson, you know, but uh, Columbus is is um, given credit to discovery for it um, because he did it on a spherical plane. Um, or a spherical planet, and um, at that point he did it for. Um, he also, cre- you know, to his, because of his belief, his convicted belief, and everything, literally caused the conversion of this planet from a flat plane to a spherical planet. Everything just because he ended up um, having a lot of people that actually followed him. Well, I believe the same thing is is true with a lot of belief systems. That that belief can be so adamantly convicted and everything that that belief, in a literal sense. Um, creates the very thing that you believe in and everything and and um, in a very kind of like causal cyclic effect and everything you know and this goes so much so that uh, I hear this um, saying quite often and everything or you know do the gods uh, God or gods exist because of man believing they exist or did, were they always there and and that's um, you know in American gods it's presented as a, a kind of like a little bit of a underlying you know torment for those people Odin and that kind of stuff who are depicted as gods and it's just like well you know there's those are two two very valid reasons maybe there's a third reason in there too Maybe the gods are created for entertainment, period, end of story. You know, and the same thing holds true for, uh, you know, for Columbus's quote-unquote discovery, too. Maybe his idea and his notion just simply expanded the possibilities because the world was kind of bored at that point and needed more possibilities. And the ideas of of a spherical planet actually let there be um, some more possibilities added to the potential mix and everything. So... In any case, as this um, as this formulation went on, I'm kind of seeing the same thing, you know, or I am seeing the same thing within Star Trek Online. So, and um, again, it comes down to, do I have any evidence that there's any real programmers out there working on it? The answer is no. I mean, I've met one game programmer in my entire life, and even he ended up getting out of game programming. Um, Bill Stokes, and uh, for the most part, I've I've yet to meet anybody else that was actually ever in game programming. Now, this doesn't exactly um, create a trend from an observational perspective and everything, but it certainly questions the the origin of of um, video games and my belief that they all um, had come from programmers before. You know, so I have zero evidence, you know, of them being produced by video games, with the exception 
of blogs, journals, and that kind of stuff. And now that I know that my my planet has a history of storytelling and telling all these stories and everything to um, support the belief systems that are actually in place and everything, without evidence, um, all I have is a story. And that story could be fact or fiction and everything. Well, I mean, I'm finding evidence of the expansion of this um, this Star Trek universe and everything directly um, on a daily basis and everything in many, many different facets. It could be graphically, it could be um, through some of the uh, missions and, and things that are being added to it on a regular basis, and uh, which bit really does beg the question, was it always there to begin with? And am I just simply discovering these capabilities, or am I actually creating them? You know, by by interacting with this thing, and I believe it's a little bit of both. You know, um, it's and it's hard to actually pin down which one came first. You know, it's like the whole chicken and the egg type thing. Which one came first? Well, they come simultaneously. You know, so um, for instance, here's a uh, I do to make it make it a fact to actually look through the exchange, and I'm trying to actually create a hierarchy of uh, in my roster. I've got 300 people that are actually allowed in my roster. And uh, I'm trying to create a, um, a, a strict hierarchy, hierarchical system modeled much after the same way of, as the corporations I've worked after. You know, the whole idea is if I'm actually going to be guiding the ship, I don't want it to be a flat um, hierarchy. I like the idea of having a few direct reports, and at this point, um, I sit there and I say, you, you, and you, you know, send this out to, you know, to these people. And I come in, and at this point, uh, I just basically you know, hand tass out and that kind of stuff. So, in any case, I'm looking at um, roster, people that are actually available for the roster and the exchange, and uh, you've got four different primary qualities of, um, of people that are available. And uh, in a militaristic type system and everything, it's not that much different than the U.S. military and everything with how the rankings are, are uh, occur. There's four primary rankings, um, and it goes from common uh, to um, uncommon to rare to very rare. And uh, there's a fifth ranking, the ultra-rare, which I've I've seen maybe one or two that go in there. But uh, for the most part, those are the four primary rankings with the fifth one that's actually added in there. Now, what I've noticed is, um, you know, the, the higher quality, um, the more, or the higher the ranking, and I'm not going to refer to it as quality, I'm going to refer to this more as the education, the education, the experience, and the background of this individual and everything, the um, the more capable they are, um, and the more expensive they tend to be as well from an energy credits perspective and everything. So, in any case, um, I'm going through and I'm basically saying, okay, you know, I've got to... You know this um, hierarchical system I'm building and everything, but I've also made it a fact to buy um, lately purchase nothing um, hire nobody but uh, humans that are actually in my uh, squad, my team, and everything. And um, I'm just doing that just to uh, you know, I mean, more or less, you know, look, if I'm actually creating a starship that takes off of planet Earth and everything, it's not going to come with a full complement of aliens directly on board. You know, I like the idea of basically saying, hey, you know, we're going to have a contingent of humans that's actually going to be going out from here, and we may be meeting, um, you know, aliens along the way. Now, I've got one alien, you know, that's on board, um, and uh, she's a known alien, but she looks very human and everything. So 
So I've done it, made it a fact to eliminate every human or every non-human, with the exception of um, holographic, a holographic doctor in the same way Voyager has. And um, everybody else is human with the exception of this one alien. Alien's name is Isis, and uh, she is the, uh, the one and the same goddess that uh, of um, ancient Phoenix and everything. And uh, I've made it so where she's my mystery passenger, the one that, uh, you know, she's an entertainer and everything. And the reason I have her on the crew, um, I like I said, I've made it a fact to get rid of everybody, is she's the, um, what I consider to be the, uh, um, what's, a, what's a good word for this? The random randomizer in the equation. She's the, the, um, I, I've got a term that I want to use, but I can't think of it. So in any case, there's a ver variety of species that are actually out there, you know, that are hireable. And I make it a fact to actually look at what's out there on a regular basis because it does seem to change and everything. And, and when I say change, I actually mean more expand. And uh, I suspect, you know, because of my expansion of my world, my galaxy and humans' presence and everything within it through this, an application like this, um, I'm actually expanding the presence of humans um, within this world and within this this uh, you know within this universe for the most part. And as a result, there's some refusal to let any single species dominate through this whole idea and concept of quote unquote balance, which tends to <laughs> not <laughs> cause some imbalance when it comes right down to it. <laughs> And um, I've, I've noticed uh, new species come online on occasion. Now, I, I suspect to some degree this does work, and, you know, from, the, from a certain perspective, it may appear Borg-like or something like that or with what I'm doing. You know, so, it, it, and that's one thing I've realized over time is, to some people and to some things, inevitably, um, I, they will be my victim, and it's not... It's strictly by accident, and and they may want to be the victim because that's their simple choice, and uh, that's just how they believe. And so ultimately, the things that they're presented with, you know, will keep on making them a victim until they choose not to be a victim. So, in any case, um, noticed uh, two new species uh, as I was going through today. One's Aener, A E N A R. It's a species, and. Uh, they look a little bit like Andorans, um, with a couple exceptions. Um, at least this one's telepath telepathic. I don't know if it, if all of them are. And um, another recent addition is uh, is Kobali. Now they look a lot like Talaxians. If I'm not mistaken, I saw a third one. I'm, I'm seeing if I can't. Uh, Can't find it. I'm gonna keep on talking to you as I'm doing this. Um, who was it? No. So there's other species I'll name as I'm going through. We got the Vorta. We got the Sulaban. We got the Par Paradin. P-A-R-A-D-A-N. Um, we got the Cardassian. Uh, of course, the humans are all in the mix. Um, got the cranium. Sulaban are kind of time travelers and everything, but uh, they're a little bit more shapeshifters. Fairly uh, newer ones is Zindi Aquatic. You see them in uh, Star Trek um, 
uh, what is it, uh, Enterprise, the uh, TV series, Remen and Romulan, those are old school ones. We've got another one called the Dosi, they've been around for a while, D-O-S-I. Uh, got the Orions, they can, they can be really an interesting species. You got the Gorn, which are amphibian, or they're more of a reptilian type. Uh, the Karima, that are also another species. You got, um, oh, here's one. Okay, I was wrong. Of course, you got the Endorian, they're still in there. You know, they're an ancestor of uh, the Vulcans. Um, the Nasiskin, they kind of like look like a, a human with an alien, uh, one of those alien sacks on their face from the uh, the first movie, Alien. And that's a funny thing, the um, Vulcans or the um, Klingons also look like a human with the alien attachment on the front. I'm talking about the alien, the, the mutant alien that comes from the egg in the movie Alien by Ridley Scott. Uh, you got the Tellarites. They're pretty, uh, pretty ugly, if you ask me. Vulcans are, of course, in there. The Ferasan and the Catan, C-A-I-T-A-N. Um, both of them are cat-like. So they've got cat-like features and everything. Surprisingly, we don't have any dog-like uh, races or species or anything. That kind of surprises me. Cation, that's right. C-A-I-N. We've got Reason that's in there too. R-I-S-A-N. That's a pleasure planet. Got the um, Klingons, which are there. Uh, the Bolian. Bolians uh, look almost human and everything, with the exception of they've got uh, blue faces and kind of like a streak that runs down the middle of their face and everything. Um... I'm going through the list here right now, and I don't see any on this. This is I'm looking through um, research lab scientists, and I'm looking by um, highest price ones. So the highest price ones tends to be the new species. We've got binar. Um, the binar are always come in pairs. Zero zero is this one's name. Um, I think it's no, that's still another karma. So right now I'm going through. The Photonic Studies Scientists. Like I said, I'm going in reverse order. You got the Sarian. Sarian. They're kind of like red, and they've got uh, your typical alien look to them. With very little nose, and kind of like a red features and red face. Um, the Ferengi, which are the traitors in the... Uh, they're the true capitalists of the, um, of the galaxy. They actually have a society that's built on a list of uh, a list of values. They call um, the kind of like directives, which are capitalistic directives. And at last count, I think there's nearly 400 of the uh, of them. You got the Benzite. They look uh, kind of like fishy. Uh, I don't see anything else that stands out here in the photonic studies. Warp theorists. Cranium, I already mentioned them, I'm pretty sure. Oh, here's one, the Romulans. Oh, I think I mentioned them, too. Different looks for the Romulans, too. Who's this? The Vorta. Vorta tend to be... Yep, all of them are telekinetic. I had a Vorta on my staff and everything, and just... 
it hurt me letting him go because I paid nearly three million credits for him. But um, I let him go just because I was in the process of. Uh, you might want to call. I mean, you can call it if you want to uh, ethnic cleansing. I just was going through and just basically removing anybody that uh, wasn't human from my uh, from my squad. The photonic. Um, they call them a species, but uh, they're more or less a. Um, I mean, they are certainly, they have a photonic presence and everything. Some can be um, manipulated that are actually projected in a three-dimensional space. And others can actually truly be sentient. They're kind of like a interesting bunch. Um, here's another one. Oh, it's another Kubale. But there's one more species I'm trying to think of. So, I've looked through Warp Theorists, now Gravimetric Scientists. What do we have here? I'm just going to do a search for top on each one of them. So, going through these um, warp prof these professions, the Warp Theorist is more or less responsible. And I'm just going to give you a, a biopsis on each one and what each one does from my perspective. What I believe each one should be responsible for. So the warp theorist is one that's interested. That's a uh, sole responsibility. Is um, you know, there's got a, a couple responsibilities. One is um, expanding the ideas and concepts of of how space and time can be, be potentially warped and uh, the different permutations and everything. Now a lot of this is done through studying of um, you know studying of of all kinds of material, you know, so it could be entertainment material, it could be video games, it could be, um, it could be, uh, TV shows and movies, you know, so kind of like the whole, uh, that's one study me mechanism for warp theorists. The other study mechanism is simple observation of the world around you, you know, and just seeing how people act and trying to actually understand how they perceive the world and everything, and, uh, coming up with new theories and ideas and concepts and everything, on how they may may perceive the world and everything. So that's kind of like the primary responsibility of warp theorists. Now, when they're called for to do specific work and everything, um, there may be certain things that need to be figured out, you know, from a perception, per, you know, perspective and everything. And um, those uh, those problems that occur, you know, in the um, space and time that actually is causing problems within our own world and our own society and everything. You know, I mean, the, the warp theorist would be one of the first people that you go to when you can't explain what's going on. You know, so say for instance, you've got, um, I saw this while I was over in um, Studio City. There's a little particular section of, uh, of um, sidewalk that was lighted in a very weird way in contrast to the rest of the uh, surrounding, surrounding sidewalk. Now, while that's not a threat, whatsoever, it would be classified pretty low on a threat level and everything, um, just from a curiosity perspective, you know, and what exactly is causing this deviation in light and everything in contrast to the surrounding environment and everything, that would be somebody you'd assign a warp theorist to. You know, it's just basically, it's just like, hey, you know, what exactly is going on here? You know, from, you know, from a theoretical perspective, you know, come up with some ideas and everything on, on why we have different lighting. Um, more obvious uh, problems that you would have would be, um, 
you know, the unexplained disappearances and everything with the Bermuda Triangle. Why do we have problems that are going on with the Bermuda Triangle and the loss of ships and the loss of vessels? This is who you'd assign a warp theorist to, you know, is to figure out what the fuck's going on here, you know, perceptually, and, and why. So, um, research lab scientists, they're kind of ja like jack-of-all-trades. You know, they're educated in research, and uh, they're educated to you know, to have a, a wide array of possibilities and uh, of different things that uh, that they might be interested in. So you can assign them to basically anything. And um, they're there to not just do the grunt work of research, you know, but to, to provide perspective um, across different uh, different fields and different areas for for research. So that's who a research lab scientist would be. It's just somebody that you can actually take and maybe one day assign to, you know, to help out with a, um, a doctor doing research on pharmaceuticals, and then the next day you could assign them to a uh, a mechanic who's uh, who's having problems um, trying to actually get an old engine to run. You know, um, while the research lab may, scientists may not necessarily like the mechanics work, they're they're going to be able to think out of the box in ways that uh, the mechanic may not be able to, and similarly, you know, that the uh, pharmaceutical person could. You know, that's that's just what their forte is. You know, so there are specific things that they enjoy. Could be various. You know, I've met uh, some people I felt could actually be, be wonderful research scientists in the real world, and they have some interesting, you know, real interesting range and capabilities. Some actually do like the grunt labor and everything. It takes them away from having to think so much. So, um, photonic study scientist would be somebody that would be responsible for. Um, they would be responsible for understanding light and everything that there is when it comes down to known uh, known light mechanisms. So basically photonics as it applies to the wave and the particle and the uh, interactions with them, um, the technologies that would be involved with that such as particle emissions, um, holographic and holograms, um, alternate realities and perspectives of alternate reality, hallucinogenics and uh, the influences on vision and sight and sound and as it applies to the photonics, the perceptual uh, photonics that actually ranges in between dimensions, um, different views of uh, interdimensional inter uh, photonics and uh, the interplay in between that. Um, you name it, when it comes down to light, that's actually what the photonic study scientist is responsible for, is the study and understanding of light and that's not just constrained to this dimension. Um, Gravimetric scientists is really easy and real basic understanding gravity. Now, it sounds real easy um, until you take into consideration that this isn't just on this planet and it's not, not just on other planets. It's also the development of gravity um, on different planets that don't necessarily have the same mechanisms of gravity that create gravity um, on our own systems and everything. So it's a study of the physics. Um, it's a study of um, the mechanisms of inertia, of material uh, and the relationships between the materials. Um, artificial gravity and the creation of artificial gravity, uh, artificial gravital, gravity me mechanisms, um, to some degree it's a reverse engineering of uh, weapons and, and uh, any systems and everything that actually leverages gravity within it, um, and anything that disrupts gravity effects and that kind of stuff would also be within the role of gra gravimetric scientists. So that combined with um, developing and working with somebody like a sensors officer um, to be able to come up with methods that connect 
actually relay the information that they're working on from a gra gravimetric perspective and everything. That uh, that would be who the gravimetric scientist would be. And geologist is a complement to the gravimetric scientist. So where the gravimetric scientist studies uh, studies um, interactions between bodies, um, the geologist is, is uh, responsible for studying the uh, interactions within a body. So. Um, you know the the molecular uh, composition of elements um, all the way to rocks and where you find them um, you name it when it comes down to the development and understanding of the formation of materials and uh, the material composition of planets and everything would be underneath the geologist perspective uh, development lab scientist um, I would actually say this one would be more or less responsible for taking the sciences and actually coming up with ideas and concepts um, that can actually translate the sciences into real life, real world, tangible mechanisms and things um, that can actually be used by others. So there, they would take the you know in the in a similar way as a research lab scientist is kind of an augmentation from a. Um, in intellectual perspective for the people that are doing the research in various different fields and everything um, and also expanding the, the others and potentially introducing new fields as well. Um, the development lab scientist is, is kind of like the one responsible for working with them to be, be able to create the end products and potentially services that could be offered um, from any any perspective and everything so they would be expected to actually have cross training in various different fields and everything um, and they might have preferred things you know so that they actually work with for instance you could have a um, a development lab scientist that comes from biolo biologist background and everything but they started seeing the interactions between things and they want to be able to create products and boom they want to be they shifted over to become a development lab scientist you know so that's that's what a development lab scientist would be is somebody that would translate and come up with the ideas, the inventions, you know, um, or just basically taking the ideas um, or invention ideas and everything that the uh, various other sciences present and actually creating these things, you know, and uh, helping create them or working with them to create them. So the botanist, plants, everything to do with plants and plant life and um, from the small to the big to the processes involved in the procedures and everything, um, a, a, a stundi, uh, understanding aberrant uh, behavior, um, and and same thing with biologists too. Um, aberrance is, is the necessity for both of these, and I would actually say being able to understand what to, and classify what a, a typical process is for a specific um, plant genesis. Um, I think they have like species names and everything very similar to biology and everything. So being able to understand and classify things in specific ways uh, would be the botanist from a plant life perspective and everything. And there's going to be some life that's actually going to cross over and you're going to have a difficult time actually determining is it a plant or is it biology. You know, in some cases it's going to be both. And uh, you will have crossover between that and the biologist. But in the typical sense, the biologist is responsible for dealing with things that are um, that are organically um, organic and also breathing of typical um, of oxygen, where plant life has a tendency to breathe CO2. So that would be the two major um, difference, or the one major difference between it. The biologist is there to work on, develop, and understand um, from a fundamental level and everything um, information on 
organisms that actually ingest air and are typically bipeds and that kind of stuff. Um, but not necessarily constrained to that. Dogs and cats and all that other kind of stuff and everything still falls within their own biology. Um, the botanist just basically it's the plants and, and the uh, the the flora and the fauna or the flora what's the uh, yeah the flora you know for worlds and that kind of stuff that's what the botanist is responsible for um, and uh, the the geologist taking a step back and everything is responsible for looking at the formation tectonics and all that kind of stuff too so sorry for overlapping there um, and then getting back into the biology too um, all of these are kind of like responsible for understanding origins too and uh, the potential um, all the potential origins that, that are known and everything. And it's really important to understand that there is, um, my belief is that there is no one single origin for everything. Um, and uh, that's more or less what needs to needs to be understood with all of this too. You know, so there could be different biological or, or um, different biological uh, origins for humans. Plain and simple. You know, um, it could be different uh, botanical origins for the same looking plant life and everything as well. You know, and, and just to give you for instance, a human can actually be cloned. Um, you can have uh, photonically, um, you know, photonically based humans, humans and everything that for all intents and purposes are, 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 are as alive as a regular human is. Um, inarguably so, too. So, uh, they may not necessarily have the biology, so they would actually cla be classified under photonic studies and everything, but it's also always possible for something to cross over. So, that always has to be taken into consideration, in my opinion, you know, and uh, the aberrant has to, has to be understood. So, having a one-size-fits-all is wonderful, but always... You know, the way I look at it is always um, take into consideration that there could be an outlier, something that doesn't fall within the realms of, of the categories that are currently existing. And astrometrics is everything to do with stars, mapping, cartography, stellar cartography. Um, I, I think it's kind of like a, a restrictive name, but um, it's basically understanding the... Um, so where gravity understands the interplay of the gravity and and the uh, the makeup of, of physical systems and how they actually move and everything and the relationships, um, the astrometrics is more or less the map, um, the terrain map of the existing area and everything. So that actually just more or less gives a lay of the land. So the map that I see when I actually click on the uh, the galaxy map um, that would actually be the product of somebody that's actually working in astrometrics. So, anyways, that's the sciences. Um, do I really want to go through all these? Uh, I will in a bit. I'm gonna start making dinner. I'll um I'll get back to the uh, to the conversation concerning the uh, the separate job titles and duties and everything um tomorrow. But um, I saw. Oh, what was it? So to be sure, today's date is April 12th, 2019. And um, I had this... Something led me. That's not that unusual and everything. To the discovery that um, Star Trek Online was released in... Uh, 2010. Now, I picked it up while, um, uh, shortly, 
right around that time and everything, but I really didn't get that much into it, and I started playing a little bit more by the time I ended up getting to uh, to North Carolina and everything. I had only briefly played with it, dabbled with it and everything, um, but uh, I just, yeah, like I said, it's just like I ended up um, not really taking it too seriously and everything. Now, oddly enough, I took a trip over to China at about the same time. It's about December 2010 is when I ended up going there, and uh, shortly after that is when I when I ended up getting laid off over from um, oh what was it uh, UTI and um, ended up you know at, literally right in the middle of a transition to a full time job opportunity and everything when all of a sudden I ended up going to uh, uh, get called over to Wells Fargo and everything. Now here's the thing. As I was going through this, um, I had had an experience happen over in China where I ended up making a comment about uh, three-dimensional programming and everything, and why they weren't leveraging it for the creation of a uh, of imagery with the tricorder and that kind of stuff. They were creating the equivalent of a tricorder um, over in China. And I said, well, why is it you don't use CAT scans? And, uh, you know, I mean, they're interested in making CAT scans and MRIs, and I was actually supposed to be program manager for this. And um, I just, I asked, you know, the flat-out question, why aren't you using, you know, um, technology from games and everything for what you're doing with CAT scans and with the MRIs and everything? And um, they, you know, they didn't understand you know, in a literal sense, didn't understand. It's just like, well, why would we use games? And I'm just like, well, three-dimensional programming is already there. Well, it's one of those things that, for me, um, the interpretation, you know, of information and everything and the correlation that to, of that information to the visual stuff seen on a screen, um, it, it just would make sense. I mean, if you're getting data in, and you're doing a, a correlation of that information um, of data, you know, to the respective um, user interface, and you know, doing it in a visual way and everything. It just made sense to do it that way. But oddly enough, you know, they didn't understand it. There was something fundamental missing, and I was kind of blown away, you know, um, that they didn't understand this, and. I also one of the things that uh, they they asked too was it's a you know these are games you know and it made me um, later realize that they didn't understand that the things I referred to as digital technology um, they didn't understand or know prior to this that I had believed all of them were games now. I've since been fed information in ways that I can't really fully, I mean, I can explain, you know, it comes through, uh, comes through energy, it comes in, in intangible ways, um, it's, it's beyond my imagination, it's, you know, it's something that, um, I can assure you is there, you know, but, uh, it, it doesn't, um, it, it, more or less, it's, you know, if you were to actually be put in touch with a collective, um, in a sense, a collective mind, and you were able to gather information from that collective mind without it actually thinking for you, 
um, that's how I retrieve it. So it's really kind of different, um, different than what I had before. And that connection commenced at about the same time I ended up going to China. Now, this doesn't mean I'm Borg, and it doesn't mean um, I'm a part of their collective. It means I may have hijacked their information sources. That's one possibility. I may have just tapped into it unknowingly. Um, in any case, what ended up happening was... I ended up starting to get flooded with information and ideas, you know, about um, the possibilities, but I always came back to this whole concept of why is it they were so confused about the idea that I believed that these things were games? Well, and then, today, I just realized that there was a correlation between my going out there and Star Trek Online. The release of Star Trek Online and the date date and time are roughly coordinated. They're roughly almost equivalent in everything. And all of a sudden I started realizing, you know, today it's just like, holy shit. They, at this point, you know, I mean, that thing is, is being produced and created, you know, by um, China. They don't know. They didn't know that these things that I regarded as games were merely games, and they ended up going about creating this thing called Star Trek using altogether different methods. Now, this isn't to demonize them. It's not to say one way or another it's bad or good or anything like that. But it's something else I ended up doing today, too, going down the path of, you know, who knows why things are leading me to the direction to check out the things that I do. But I had this um, really weird internal pressure that's kind of like pushing me and everything. And uh, I was, I discovered that um, three things changed concerning friends. Two friends had passed away. Um, well, at least Facebook has posted as they have been passed away. They've got memorials on their website, on Facebook's website and everything. And in addition to that, there's also a, um, a third guy that I knew. Kevin Fisk was his name. His name is now Kevin Spear. And he claims to have had no, uh, no changes of, of name or anything like that. So here's the thing. This is something that uh, I really think is kind of interesting in a funky way. Um... To some degree, looking from the outside, or being on the outside looking in on the internet in this fashion, um, I suspect some people um, are going to be okay with not going along with the collective timeline that's being written and manipulated from a collective mindset perspective and everything. And uh, they may actually look at the world that I'm creating, you know, the the whole concept and idea of a Star Trek-based universe and everything that kind of includes a lot of shit from all kinds of different media and that kind of stuff. And they may say, hey, I want that. So as a result, they reject attempts to collectively manipulate their mind. And what ends up happening is they end up getting written off from a binary perspective, but their mind still exists out there. So that's actually the pressure that I was feeling. People like Marco, um, Marco Solis, Monty Garland, and um, who's the other one? Um, uh, Shade Shaw. All three of them are trying to tell me in their own way that they're still here. You know, that um, they still perceive the, you know, perceive reality in their own way and everything, and that they respect me. 
and they respect the choices that I've made and everything to some degree. They're commending me for sticking up for what I believe is right and everything. Um, and that's just something that's just like, you know, uh, <laughs> collectively, you may not want to believe these things are possible and everything, and you may actually know, have this idea and notion that uh, it's something you rationally dismissed and everything. I can't prove it. I can't share it. Well, I can, you know, and people have been trying to do this for, you know, for eons and everything. I mean, the evidence is all there. It's always been there. You know, that's a beautiful thing about a collective. It preserves its own information sources and everything, even though those information sources, for the most part, refute it. You know, the, the only thing that the uh, collective doesn't do, or does do, is it has a tendency to um, actively deny and debunk everything to the point that uh, that's that actually starts creating the glaring holes that basically say, okay, you're going to publish everything for information, but you're also going to, you know, make it an active process to completely um, debunk everything, you know, in a confrontational way and everything. Those kind of methods get really kind of obvious after a while, you know, and it just seems like a bunch of children, you know, that are, are chatting in high school and everything, you know. Eventually, you know, some people rise above it and look at it and just go, oh, you know, the system is so irritating. You know, and to some degree we just look at it and just basically say, hey, um, I'm suspecting that a leader's kind of elected, you know, um, through a process of potentially self-selection, and um, that self-selection ends up having, you know, followers, and what it does is it, in a literally literal sense, creates an alternate reality. You know, so the collective goes one way. You know, and I see it, and I see it saying sayonara, you know, and I see it through the collective information sources and everything. It doesn't make it right or wrong, it just makes it a different perspective and everything, and a reality that's rewriting itself and everything. Meanwhile, here I am, I get different reality and everything, something that's actually bridging to something, you know, greater. You know, people's minds have the capability to be able to, you know, they're they're getting a sense, an idea, you know, of what it takes to make the mind, you know, capable of traversing space and time and everything without actually it driving you, you crazy. You know, and I've been taught a lot of these lessons already and everything from an external perspective through the Star Trek shows. This is just an indication of, you know, how the physical and the material, you know, is one plane, um, one, one idea, one mentality, one way, but it's not the only way. Now, I'm not saying I'm preparing to die or anything like that. I'm, just, I'm, I'm in the process of training, you know, to receive, you know, to not necessarily to receive something, but to understand how to better um, better work with the tools and technology that I'm I'm actually getting you know getting privy to and everything so in any case um, Monty um, Marco and Shade I love you guys um, Monty you were a nut job back in high school and everything and I had always thought you didn't you know you going into um, going in to be the border patrol and everything was just such not a good fit for you. 
you know, um, I knew that, and I think you knew that when you were a kid and everything, and you were a thespian through and through, and to be given those opportunities and chances and everything as a thespian and everything, oh my fucking God, of anybody I've met between you and Darren and Mark, you know, um, highly talented people, you know, and I do truly believe um, you didn't get what you deserved in, in this life so far. And um, that's one promise I could make to you, you know, is that you would, you know, in a coming life and everything with me, you know, I'll make sure you get that position, you get to be the thespian that you want to and everything. So, Darren Mitch is another dude, you know, I'm, I know you remember him and everything, and um, the other one is uh, Mark, you know, why Mark Brown never hit it in music. Talk about a dude I would want to hear I, that has parallels and skill levels, you know, with Stevie Wonder and some of those greats and everything. Damn. If he could just take his talent and do something with it, it's my belief. I mean, between the three of you, you know, you're, you know, thespian when it comes down to it. And the one thing I definitely think is you need a little bit more humility. You got to be an asshole, you know, um, and uh, that whole self-righteous indignation in everything was something that I myself didn't particularly like. But what I do absolutely feel is you're talented. And talented beyond any anyone that I ever, you know, that I knew from a thespian perspective. You know, you had this magnanimous personality. You were just cool. And, and Shade, let me be honest, there's that uh, one girl, um, what's her name? Um, the one from, uh, oh, what was it? The Big Bang Theory. I know you had a crush on her. And I'll tell you what, the one thing I thought was, I wish, I, I hoped, I could actually see her with you. I would love to see the expression, especially if you, you know, that I helped, help that, that process out and everything. Um, it's not that I want to be ego-stroked or anything like that, but I just, I would want to see, I wa would want to know, well, we'll put it this way, between the two of them. Um, because you asked, I mean, because you actually stated it, you know, to begin with, you know, this is the type of woman I would love to be with and everything, you know, um, combined with just choosing me to say that to, you know, it's just like, I, if anything, I would love to reciprocate it, you know, and just basically say, hey, you know, all I'd want is a simple, hey, thanks, Q. You know, but seriously, you know, between Monty and that, and you and that, and then Marco. Marco surprised the fuck out of me after the trip and everything that we ended up taking over and when I met him out in, um, out in uh, Europe. And he surprised me so much with his turnaround, you know, that that he actually loved what he, he was doing with the sound, sound engineering type stuff and everything. And um, given a little bit of nurturing, I have no doubt in my mind that from a sound perspective, that man could come up with some things, you know, that uh, could be unparalleled. Now, he hadn't really particularly struck me as a highly intelligent and uh, creative individual and everything, but he, he struck me as somebody that was more, 
there for you. You know, I mean, even when he came came at me, you know, when Marco, you came at me, and you gave me the hundred bucks, and I didn't even ask for it. I mean, I wasn't asking for it. Now, if I could actually see you and help you with a career and in an alternate reality and everything, and knowing how much you've actually been appreciative of the same the same thing that I've been appreciative, which is the movie and, you know, the sound industry. I'm not a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino, but I, gotta I can certainly understand how the guy could inspire you. So if I can actually do the same with you and maybe give you a leg up and that you didn't get on this planet and everything and help, help motivate you or help, you know, define your direction and everything, boom, dude. You know, like Monty. And, um... Like Shane. And Shane, going back to you, man, I'll be honest. You always had the facial features and presence of a leading man. And the cool thing about a camera, I know you're concerned about your height. And you can take that and, you know, look at what happened to Tom Cruise bigger in life and everything. You have such a presence and everything. I always thought that. That's why I liked hanging out with you. Your depression, though, no, that was a hard part to deal with. But your presence, though, so. was strong. Was always strong. You three, the three that have chosen to part ways with this planet, you have a choice now to make. I'll, I'll make sure you get what you want. I'll make sure that path is created for you and everything. I'll use the tools and technology that I'm going to have access to and everything by taking the path that I, I'm going on. If you support me and my path. I'll manipulate time to make us where you make different decisions, where something falls in your path and everything. It gives me something to do. Promises made to three specific people concerning three specific things. Marco, I'll take you out of harm's way. Monty, I'll uncover what happened to you and make sure it doesn't happen again. And not only that, but I also make sure that uh, you take a, you know, you take different paths and everything, and you go towards, you know, to honor that thespian heritage and everything. I'd love to see you in the movies. And Shade, same thing, dude. Big Bang Theory. How about if they casted somebody else as one of the lead actors actors for that? Instead of the Indian dude, having it be you. Uh, I don't know, it's a thought. In any case,
I can actually start messing and toying with time and everything. I've got the internet as my feedback mechanism and everything. Perhaps you can actually feed the information through my console and help me. Alter time. I mean, according to the text inside the uh, the game world and everything, it it claims, and I quote, I have the capability to collapse timelines. This would also mean I should have the capability to be able to alter them in subtle ways. So Monty and... Monty, and the reason I'm singling you three out is because all three of you had pretty good impacts on me in my life. I wouldn't go so far to say profound, but you had good impacts on that. Monty, I saw how quickly somebody's personality can change, and you were there as a friend and everything, but you weren't always there as a friend and everything. You were just there as a friend enough and everything. And and I knew, even then, when it, when it could do something for you. Yeah. Let me reciprocate that. I'll be here as a friend for you to alter that timeline. To see you on the, th the path of the thespian. Now as you ponder the afterlife and everything, you help provide me the, the tools and technology through this interface to be able to make those manipulations and everything. I'll make them. I'll make the changes. And Marco, you were there for me, period. I mean, not in any profound way. Just there to hang out. There to shoot the shit. There to lend me a hand and everything, financially and everything. It was cool. So the same thing holds true for you. You help manipulate the technology and the tools that I'm actually receiving information from. I will alter the course of history. And what happens? And last but not least, Mr. Shaw. Same thing holds true for you. Me and you, we, had, we went out no, numerous times and everything. And, um... You were there for me when nobody else was. And I know that was mutual, too. But that's okay. You're still a good dude. So, you helped make those changes for me. To provide me the tools and technology to make those modifications and everything. I will do it. And three of you, now that you have each other's names and everything, work together. Meet each other. Take the time to understand. Maybe coordinate activities. It's up to you.
but I do think that all three of you were robbed of a, a life that uh, I had actually imagined. That was better than the one that you had been given. So, it's up to you, ultimately. I would love to see the technology change here on my side to be able to accommodate that, but... I don't know, and I'm not even remotely aware of what, uh, what behind the scenes it will take to actually put that in place and everything. So I suspect you've got some work ahead of you. As your disembodied consciousnesses coordinate and figure it all out and everything. I love the idea of manipulating the timeline, slowly but surely. At least the perceived timeline on the internet. And here's the thing. You know, I've been so detached from all three of you. You know, that Marco... You know, I mean, after that point and everything in 2014, I have no idea. You know, um, sure, the, the death is one answer about why you didn't contact me. Another one is you just got too into what you're doing. And Monty... Yeah, here's a cool thing. I can make manipulations to the time and everything. It would actually be something cool to see. Time getting altered ever so slightly and everything to incorporate your presence in, uh, in a fashion that was a little bit more just. And shade. I don't know, man. I just don't know. So, anyways, all three of you, I'm asking you to put to do some work together, and I'd like to reinsert you in this world. I don't want your presence gone yet. It's not that I'm not ready to accept it. It's just that it's an opportunity for me to learn. It's easy to accept it. So, anyways, it's entirely up to you. And Steve, this also applies to you, too, for the same reasons. And you, too, Paul. Now, this is annoying. I tend to uh, have to go to the grocery store, and all of a sudden, boom, I look down. I like talking on the way to the grocery store, I know. I'm a nerd. But, um... I just, um, for getting a couple, or wanting to get a couple ingredients and everything for dinner tonight, making a Thai-style tilapia, which uh, should be pretty good, uh, but I need coconut milk, lemongrass, and almonds, a couple almonds to be able to boot. But uh, in any case, um, 
When I was a, I was at a Prudential in 2000, and started there in 2007, and I worked all the way there to until uh, about 2011. And one of the things that um, ended up, um, I ended up, t- well, shit, I lost a little bit of that last one, didn't I? If I toss it, then you're not gonna know what I'm talking about. So chances are, I'll just toss it. Back in ninety two, ninety three. I'm tired. I um started um taking a calculus course, and um, I had already taken algebra, college algebra, um, various different forms of algebra, and then trigonometry. And ultimately led to uh, to taking calculus. And uh, first time I took calculus, I took it over at Arizona State University, and um, I just didn't get it. Um, differentials and discrete mathematics and and all this shit is just like there's. I, it just wasn't clicking. You know, I just try as I might. And the same thing held true for physics, you know. So I can understand physical motion and everything, but when it came down to um, being able to put it down in concise form and that kind of stuff on a on a piece of paper, um, for the life of me, it was just, I was having a bitch of a time. And uh, I ended up failing both classes the first time through. Um, now, first I blame the instructor and everything, Dr. Akalajawan and everything. He was the one that I ended up uh, taking it over to Arizona State University and everything. And he was from two countries, neither of which I could pronounce the name and neither of which I, I even understand remotely what the hell the guy was saying half the time. And uh, the physics class was a class of 350 people in stadium-style seating. And it... Um, yeah, it was just a huge class, and it, it was hard to ask questions and everything, and the, you know, the professor, he just had a tendency to throw things on a slide projector, and just before, uh, you know, computers were as big as they are now, he would throw things on a slide projector, handwritten notes and that kind of stuff, and boom, 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 and the expectation was when you took a test and everything that uh, you weren't going to use a, a calculator, and that was true for calculus, too. Now... For me, it was the type of thing that, um, oh my god, I just didn't get it. And um, part of it just comes down to, you know, it, it just, there's something about it that just felt unnatural. You know, um, it, it didn't translate well, we'll put it that way. You know, the observations, it, it just, um, the whole thinking processes and everything involved with calculus and physics, you know, it was just, um, didn't understand it. Now, don't get me wrong, I understand inertia and, you know, laws of motion and that kind of stuff and everything, and, um, you know, friction, frictional forces and, you know, the equations that, that bind all these things together, but, you know, just all together, this shit just wasn't clicking. So, I ended up taking the class again, Now this is at the time I was a computer science engineering major, and, uh, I took the classes again, um, well, I took, um, physics during the summer class there, but I also, I took cal- uh, calculus at the, uh, at a summer school over at, um, Mesa Community, and, um, 
I knew calculus was fundamental to physics, so I was more concerned, personally concerned, about understanding calculus than I was the actual application in a physical perspective and everything. So, And the, the good news for me was I actually ended up talking to the instructor that I ended up taking over at Mesa Community beforehand, and I explained to the guy, I'm just like, you know, I'm... <laughs> I'm not good at this. Um, I already took it once over at ASU, and I just flat out didn't understand it. You know, I was the first to admit, just didn't understand. You know, fundamentally, it just defied me. So, he was very good. Um, he ended up uh, saying in advance as the class started and everything that, uh, you know, he was honest, you know, half of you are going to drop out and the other half are, are going to stick with it and everything, but you're not all going to pass. And uh, it was just like, Jesus. You know, he was pretty honest about it and everything. But, um, you know, at that point he also looked at me and, you know, kind of gave me a nod and uh, made it clear he would, you know, because I had approached him early on and I told him, you know, he would actually help me out and everything. So, in any case, um, we ended up, um, I met with a guy on a weekly basis, and uh, he sat down with me, you know, for anything that I had, and he was, you know, my teacher, he was also an in a, a um, to some degree, a tutor, he was a wonderful man and everything, I can see the guy's face, but I can't remember what his uh, name was and everything, but, um, yeah, he sat down with me, and, you know, some concepts just couldn't wrap my head around and everything. Now, when it comes down to it, um, calculus and and uh, and physics, um, you know, I I wouldn't say I'm great at them, you know, but what I do understand is physical motion, and everything, and um, and the applied physical motion. Um, but when it comes down to the equations, and this is actually what I realized through taking physics not one, not two, but three times and failing. Um, was the memorization of of equations that was where my problem was. My problem wasn't necessarily with the calculus portion of things. You know, my I mean, calculus it, itself isn't that difficult. It's just a matter of understanding, you know, um, slopes and and more or less the interpretation of things from more or less a binary method to. Um, you know, to a, a mathematical, you know, thing. It's it's really not that hard. My issue, you know, was especially with physics, um, was memorization of the equations. Now, with calculus, memorization of trigono trigonometric equations was something that, um, that I actually had to have reinforced, you know, so, and that's actually part of, you know, thanks to the help of him, um, combined with, you know, having to go through some of the processes or everything that I did with just understanding basic um, trigonometric functions and and uh, some of the relationships between angles and and uh, and angles and sides and that kind of stuff of the triangle and everything. Um, I had to have that socked into me because it's kind of crucial. You know, a critical part of uh, of calculus and everything is to understand that, you know, the angles and um, and in particular, you know, the application of things in a non-movement way.
Now you add in movement to to things at that point. Um, this is where me and physics kind of like go separate ways. Um, I don't look at movement the same way that physics does, and and um, and that's actually what I what I realized over time was, you know, physics tries to um, has a tendency to from a binary sense, at least the, the perspective I had, um, have equations and, and refer to equations as absolute. These are absolute, um, you know, equations. They're unchanging, and and um, you know, this is just how things are. And me, me. I mean, I, I've, I, I think part of the problem was. I may have actually been seeing these equations change over time, and because of that, my mind just wasn't able to commit the current equation. You know, I, I'm suspecting that's probably more the case. You know, so well, it's it's almost like you know somebody trying to give you a phone number, and um, they change their phone every day. I mean, you know, of course you're not going to remember, you know, what the phone is, you know. Um, and uh, here's an example. The speed of light's changing on a regular basis, you know. Um, it's they, they claim it's getting more, um, more, what is it, uh, precise, you know, but it's really not, you know. It's, it's actually, it's been changing ever since I've known. You know, it's not precision. It's actually just going, you know, the distance away from a meter um, it has been growing consistently in contrast to the foot ever since I've actually been paying attention to everything. You know, so at one point there was a direct correlation and everything, and that direct cor correlation's gone out the door and everything, and that's just gone, been my observation of the of the um, of that. Um, the correlation of meters to feet and everything has changed over the period of my life and everything, and um, I'm I'm not talking about in insubstantial ways either. You know, so for me, you know, having these observations and everything. You know, one might label this as di dyslexic. Um, I don't, though. I actually, you know, say that this is more or less my observation of reality. Um, doesn't make it as easy to actually have um, precise equations of measurement and that kind of stuff. So, in any case, um, um, I just the reason I thought of it just now was uh, differential equations. There's a uh, a YouTube video on differential equations, and I have kind of a a desire to do it to go check it out. But one of the things that that keeps crossing my mind is that for me, um, the binary interpretation um, of information um, put into a mathematical form is something I'm actually trying to steer away from. And the reason for it is math is, it's a language. It describes things in one form and fashion and everything. But the people that actually get involved in math and also, you know, calculus and physics and that kind of stuff have a tendency to think in absolutes. And um, I'm not an absolute kind of guy, you know, and uh, that's, 
you know, for me, I've broken free of the absolutism, and, and with that, it means looking at something like differential equations and, you know, the formulas of uh, calculus, and or especially physics, you know, calculus not so much. I mean, it's it still, you know, makes sense from, uh, you know, from certain perspective and everything, and it's not always dealing in absolutes. It's... You know, you get into some of the, the more theoretical calculus type stuff, and it tries to deal in absolutes and everything through formulas, but it's not necessarily like that. But physics, though, and the formulas that go with it and everything, um, it just, for me, it's just the type of thing that, uh, it just, I mean, here's, here's the idea. Um, there's one scene that, um, Q ends up making a comment to Jordy LaForge when they're talking about this, uh, the rotation of this um, moon that's going around this, uh, this planet. And uh, they're trying to resolve the problem of the moon actually coming down and, and hitting the planet and everything. And, you know, Q says flippantly and everything, well, that's okay, just go ahead and change, you know, the cosmolo cosmological constant and everything. And, um, this is the thing for me is I've realized that that perspective has kind of been ingrained in me my entire life and everything. You know, and I do think to a large degree that this entity called Q, as depicted in Star Trek, is one and the same as me. You know, um, if not, at least the philosophical values and everything are kind of one and the same. So, or the ideological, I, I would probably say, is probably a better way of uh, looking at it. But, um, you know, when it comes down to it, it's just the whole concept is, I work, you know, in a, in a system like that, you know, when he makes a, co a comment about the, you know, gravity constant or something like that, you know, well, that makes sense to me. Perfect sense. You know, and it's just like, I mean, that that's easy. You know, that makes, makes sense. Now, to Jordy LaForge and to everybody else within the crew and everything, they, they're fucking clueless. But... All of a sudden, boom! It causes ca causes a cascade that makes these guys think that all of a sudden, you know, they're sitting there saying, "Oh, but if we take that idea and then we turn this to this, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, they're helping that planet escape, you know, escape or the um, the moon, you know, coming it down and plummeting into the planet and and annihilating everybody on the planet." And um, that's the thing for me, you know, that I've actually started to realize, is understanding the in-depth mechanisms. You know, um, I, I've lost touch with the absolute granular detail of things. You know, and uh, I've definitely done it with when it comes down to computers. I mean, I could go through and sure, I I pulled it, pulled down Python a. Uh, you know, a couple months ago and everything, and within, you know, maybe 45 minutes, I had my first fully compiled application and graph that uh, I built leveraging, you know, pretty rudimentary, you know, Python code and everything. For me, it's easy, you know, taking on any new language or something like that. Literally, I'm creating something within 45 minutes or less in most cases. You know, so, but uh, if you're going to ask me to create something elaborate, you know, with these kind of things, well, for the most part, I lack the attention. You know, it's not a lack of capability, it's just, it's just a simple lack of attention, lack of capability to be able to sit down and actually write, you know, code like I used to and everything. I can't do it anymore. Um, it's, it's, can't is, is the strong word that I'm going to use with it, and 
it's just I don't I lack the motivation altogether too. Now similarly, um, looking at the Star Trek thing and everything, and uh, I'm starting to realize it's just like okay, my thoughts and my ideas and everything are having a direct correlation. They're influencing the development of this game, and uh, I'm starting to see you know I mean plenty of you know, ideas and little, little pieces here and there and everything that are actually manifesting themselves. Now, it's my belief that there's two primary methods of communi- of, um, of, of, um, simulation. And, uh, the two primary methods are digital and analog. Um, both of them produce what, what appears visually to be the same, it's a very similar results, very similar results. So, you know, like this game that I'm playing, you know, it's also a simulation. It's also a real world, too. You know, when it comes down to it, it's an analog, you know. Um, and the digital is kind of like a shallow copy of the analog for the most part. That's one thing that I've realized. But uh, with that, with that said, um, I had a few years ago that I ended up sending an Xbox in. And uh, it's when they had the red, red, uh, red ring of death and everything that was happening for the uh, for the Xboxes. So they, you know, they had this uh, return policy. Microsoft did that if you had this happen, you could turn it back in. Well, I suspect that I turned in a digital copy of that Xbox, but what I received in return was an analog. And um, the reason I'm saying this is I ended up seeing some equations, some things that actually um, I had never seen before with the user interface and everything. And in particular, it was a really cool three-dimensional interface and everything that got downloaded right away with it. And in addition to that, the sphere behind the scenes, I remember it clearly, it was curved. But it was a perfect curve. It didn't have any edges to it. Now, from a computing perspective, um, at the time, we didn't have the capability, you know, at least uh, to be able to do that on a real-time basis and everything, and as fast as it was happening and everything. And that made me, really made me start wondering about the origin of technology and what was going on with it and everything. Well, now I'm seeing more evidence of, you know, analog computing and everything you know, quantum, um, if you want to put it that way, but I'm, I'm going to refer to it more as, uh, eh, quantum's still a good term for it and everything, too, but, um, when it comes down to it, you know, there's mathematics, you know, which explains, and from a binary perspective, from a polygon perspective, it, um, it, it shows a map of, and creates an image of reality and everything, but, that's an interpretation. You know, that's not reality. That's an interpretation. And while it may be a a pretty close approximation, there's points where particularly when you start delving down, you know, into the quantum realm and everything where it lacks the capability to be able to explain what it sees. And um and and that is at the level of physics, and that's the level that I was having issues with. You know, it changes, you know, constantly. And math has a hard time actually capturing change. You know, math does tend to be static and everything. 
So, in any case, um, the reason I brought this up was differential equation thing came up on the other machine, and I had a little push to, you know, from something or somewhere that just said, hey, you need to look at this, and for me, it was just the type of thing that I was just like, no, I don't need to look at it. Um, the whole process of higher level mathematics and everything, I'm just not interested in anymore. You know, discrete mathematics is, you know, I mean, I'll look at some of the terms and everything, but when it comes right down to it, the whole idea and concept of <coughs> orbits around a planet, you know, for satellites and everything, to, you know, to momentum, you know, to inertia, to all these different concepts and ideas and everything, I understand them. You know, now, I may not understand the granular, nitty-gritty details, about each one of these, and I don't need to. You know, that's somebody else's job. Me? Hmm. I'm just kind of an observer of, of reality, and I understand that, you know, I, I've seen it change so many different times, and here's a key example. You know, today me and my mom were talking about an event that happened with my brother, and, um, you know, she ended up explaining, you know, she talked about the story about that uh, one time she ended up seeing my brother and he had run home from the bus stop and everything and he ended up um, more or less, you know, decking, you know, one of the other kids and everything in our front yard as he, uh, as he approached him and everything. Well, me, I don't have that recollection. I have the recollection of running out there, you know, standing up to the kid and just basically telling the kid to get lost. You know, and Jason kind of stood behind and, you know, he was basically not... Uh, he was not interested in fighting and everything, you know. And um, for me, it's just like I had I had one recollection of the event. My mom had another recollection, and uh, you know, I told her, you know, and I said, "Mom, I said this is kind of like goes directly into my philosophical ideals of how the world works. I see things that other people don't, you know, and that's okay." You know, my interpretation doesn't, you know, even though it doesn't necessarily fit to the collective interpretation of reality and everything, doesn't make it wrong. It's just my perception. You know, my values have influenced it accordingly and everything, and I'm fine with that. So, in any case, um, it's, it was kind of weird that uh, she tells me this random story, and then she follows it up with that random story that uh, supports her overall new, newfound belief system and everything. I'm just like, on. Well, I mean, you know, it, it could be potentially an alteration of the past and everything that she's doing, or this could genuinely be the new perspective and frame, you know, that she's putting around him and everything. I don't know. You know, it doesn't matter, you know, what uh, what matters is. Um, just that, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know, it's just like seeing the changes on that on a regular basis and everything like that is really interesting. So, the other thing I wanted to get into was um, the duty officer stuff. Now, I went through, um, what was it, operations yesterday? I think so. Let me see. Uh, I think I went through operations. So I talked about astro astrometrics. No, I went through science, didn't I? Yeah, science. So, um, I'm going to breeze through them real quick and everything, but um, keep in mind, this is all the professions that are currently offered within the Starfleet, and uh, I'm, I expect this to actually change over time. These are the primary buckets and uh, of which people fit into and everything. Um, I'm going to pull up the exchange real quick.
So, yeah, that was um, that was an area known as science. So you've got duty. These are duty officers, and a duty officer is very much like the the NCOs and and the non-officers um, in the military. So these would be kind of like enlisted ranks that would actually be responsible for being in these fields and everything, um, with the exception of one branch, which, which is the civilian duty services. And uh, the civilian duty services, you might see, um, could be fulfilling any number of, of needs. You know, for instance, um, on a military base, you might see somebody who's working in a, com a commissar or the uh, commissary, that's it. and. Um, you know, you're going to see civilians working in those places. Um, civilians might be working in other areas too. You know, for instance, the bar um, and nightclub that's uh, that's on typically a lot of these bases. Um, all the way to, you know, um, I've heard rumor that there's strip joints in the, some of these places as well, and I don't doubt that either. So in some cases, you have entertainers. That's what the, what they refer to them as. So these would also classify under civilian duty and civilian services. Um, so I'll just run through the civilian ones real quick. There's the bartender. That one's pretty obvious. There's the advisor, somebody that uh, provides an external, um, external perspective to any of the uh, the people that are actually within the staff. Um, both. Uh, they, they act as a liaison for the real world and for the community at large and everything. That's what the whole purpose of an advisor is. And uh, that that might be, I mean, an advisor's not that much different than what you would imagine an advisor being for like the president or something like that. Somebody that has key area focuses, key area interests, and, um, and more or less to, to some degree, but, uh, possibly a constituency. So, but uh, typically they're they're leading, um, they're advising. You know, the leaders is what it comes down to. You got the the bartender, like I said, the chef. You know, that's a pretty obvious one too. You know, somebody that's helping, responsible for serving the, the food. You got colonists, and and these are um, more or less the ones that are doing migration between between different places. So they might actually be going from Earth to you know, quote-unquote, a better life on Vulcan or some other planet, Riza. You know, these are just people that are en route from one place to another. It's not always human either. Um, you got the diplomat. You know, these are anybody that's in, uh, could be in elected offices or in kind of any kind of uh, uh, selective uh, position, everything of authority that uh, governs the society and everything. You get the entertainers, and these entertainers are not restricted to strippers, um, but they definitely include a lot of them. Um, it also includes, you know, people like, um, you know, comedians and, you know, people that might be on movies and TV shows, actors and actresses, um, all the way to um, people that are actually, in this case here, um, working on holodecks and that kind of stuff, is, uh, or in other, other entertainment capacities and that kind of stuff like that. So, um, prisoners are POWs, people that have actually been seized and who surrendered during a uh, time of war, and um, 
that's more or less what uh, what they're there for. And typically they're they're filled in the brig, and you exchange those. I exchange those at the uh, space dock. So I you know provide them, give them to security, hand them over security, and what security does with it, I don't know. Um, but that's the only way I could legitimately get rid of them. The other way I can get rid of them is to release them out of the airlock, and that's kind of brutal, so I don't do that. Um, the refugees, these are in a similar fashion, like colonists, but uh, they're, they're also leaving a place of warfare. You know, so Syrian refugees, that's a good for instance and everything. They would actually be fall under this category and that kind of stuff. Um, trader. And these are people that are doing trades of anything. So it could be commodities. It could be um, it could be business. Um, it could be you know stocks and bonds and whatever. You know, there's any number of different things that could be traded, and uh, a trader would be considered the expert in these. So that covers the civilian primary uh, responsibilities and everything. And then we have another branch called tactical, and uh, the rest of these are going to be non-civilian. Um, typically, they're going to be referred to as enlisted ranks, but they're all but they're all referred to as duty officers. So you got the con officer, and uh, in naval terms, this is a person that actually has control of the uh, of the vessel and everything. So this would be the one um, in a in a plane that would be steering it. And this would be. Um, the one that uh, in the um, in the uh, in a submarine would be the one steering it. Literally, it's the one driving the ship. So that's always the con officer. Um, the energy weapons officer is the one that's responsible for managing, maintaining, um, testing, um, prototyping anything that actually emits energy as a uh, from a weapons perspective and everything. So in um, in the Star Trek universe, it, this would include but not be limited to tetrions, polarons. Um, oh, what are some of the other weapons? Um, phasers. Uh, Phasers, lasers, uh, let's see, what else do we have? I'm looking at some of the weapons I have. There's Polaron, Thoron infused. I've got Chronotons, that's another one, another type of weapon. Um, Antiprotons. <sighs> Phaser beams. Um, there's another phaser. Phaser sniper rifle. Let's see what my. I'm pretty sure I've got nothing but uh, yeah, chronotons in my ship. There's a Polaron and Tetrion. Oh, plasma. So plasma-based weapons. So anything that uh, that would be energy-based would be um, would be considered uh, under this person's category and privilege. They'd be responsible for maintenance for you name it. When it comes down to this. Um, the warfare specialist ground would be the one that would be responsible for doing tactics and techniques uh, from a, and again, this is under the tactical category. So, again, the energy weapons, um, it's all tactically related as well. And what that means is this is just the planning. Um, distribution, the, the maintenance, um, the ones that, that have the, the working knowledge of this information everything. Um, the duty officer of the warfare specialist is ground. They're the person that's actually responsible for planning missions on the ground. That's their sole responsibility. 
planning missions, you know, in war war related zones and that kind of stuff. That's where where hostiles are going to be expected and that kind of stuff. Warfare specialists, that's the ground. That's what their job and responsibility is. So and this would be for instance, um, you know, you've got two different campaigns that occurred over in Iraq. Um, you know, one of them is the ground campaign. Well, this is this is a person like this would be one of the ones that are responsible from an NCO perspective and everything for planning that with the generals. Projectile weapons officer. Um, this one is responsible for doing anything that actually applies a kinetic force to it. So, um, this person would be responsible for torpedoes, for bullets, for um, mines. Anything that does damage um, through kinetic energy. So there's a difference between energy-based weapons, which is photons, tetrions, anything you know that uh, that's more energy-based. This is kinetic-based. So don't, I'm just I'm not going to mix terms. And I'm going to say one's energy-based energy primarily. The other one's kinetically-based. So anything with inertial forces and everything, that's actually where this is going to fall in. So projectile weapons is going to be anything, you know, that, uh, you know, can be thrown, tossed, you know, creating kinetic energy blasts and everything. So that, that, that would be their responsibility. So shield distribution officer, they'd be responsible for um, all starships come equipped with, with shields, and so do the uh, so do the personal uh, devices and everything. Everybody carries. Everybody has a personal shield that's associated with them and everything. Now, a shield distribution officer would be responsible for both, um, for maintaining and basically you know taking a look at from and from a tactical perspective and planning <coughs> shields um, from both a. Um, a starship basis, and also from a, uh, uh, you know, from a more personal basis. Typically, there's going to be at least two people that's going to be associated. One will, one will be devoted to the the ship and the vessel, and the maintenance of the vessel, and the other one will be uh, would be devoted to support of the uh, support of the the individuals that are actually wearing and carrying. Um, but each individual will still be responsible for their own. But this one would be responsible for the use and, and distribution of equipment and everything um, at a starship level and everything. The warfare specialist in space is, in much the same way, the counterpart to the uh, warfare specialist on the ground. This one's responsible for planning and uh, and more or less determining best course of action and everything from a space-based perspective and everything. So again, tactical um, officer and everything, and to the ground campaign, this person would be responsible for anything that's actually going to be happening in space. So that cover covers the tactical officers. Um, then we get into security, and there's some only three security officers here for the duty officers. One's the armory officer, and uh, the armory officer is the one that's uh, distributing firearms and uh, and, and shields. Um, their their sole responsibility is maintaining um, and securing those assets. That's their solitary job. So in a military, this is the one that you would get the M16 from. Um, this is the same one and the same person that you'd be checking that M16 into at the end of the day. Um, this would be the one person that uh, flak jackets and that kind of stuff in the military, everything. Um, and 
on board a starship, this would be the one that uh, you're checking your phasers in, or your, let's say you've got a personal phaser and everything, but, uh, you know, typically you're not going to be using that phaser um, actively. You know, I think everybody on a starship is going to be, is going to have one um, off to the side and everything, but this is the one that you would actually get assault rifles from and all that kind of stuff. So... So that's the armory officer. They're just more or less responsible for the firearms in support of, of, uh, of the things that can actually be used more offensively and are used more offensively than are defensively. So, duty officers, um, the assault squad officer. Now this one's uh, more um, combined with the tactical, um, would be responsible for reconnaissance and for getting in and, to, and getting out of places um, very quickly. So, the SEAL team. Delta team. These are the kind of guys that you would find under the assault squad officers. Tactical, tactically based teams that are quick, uh, quick and dirty, and they have the intention of getting into and out of a place really quick. This would be the one that would be responsible for overseeing those kind of operations and that kind of stuff. And uh, and why? I mean, personally, it probably be a better fit under. Well, tactical would be planning. These are the guys that are actually doing it. So. Um, and the final duty officer are the security officers. So these would be the basic ones, you know, that would um, could do anything. You know, they can secure a building, and uh, they'd be, you know, the ones that uh, would actually be responsible for, you know, you'd be talking to them the moment that you walked in the door. And uh, if you didn't talk to a receptionist, you know, you'd also talk to a security guard to get into the building. <coughs> um, the, the security guard for a, a grocery store, this would be a security officer as well. You know, on a starship, um, they're the ones that are responsible for taking somebody to the brig. Um, they're the ones that are responsible for, you know, uh, assisting with the apprehension of, uh, of, you know, felons, of anybody that's actually, you know, doing this. If somebody's uh, suspected of, um, of a, a crime or something like that, um, the security officer would be one of the first ones to respond to the scene to secure the scene. So that would be the security officer's job. Um, then you've got uh, duty officers engineering. And uh, it starts with the consultant. Now the consultant is kind of like the, um, the jack of all trades, um, but they're also there to help elevate the team awareness of what they're doing and to basically integrate uh, across different um, p uh, different fields and areas and different industries and everything and help the team um, pursue a goal or something like that. A consultant can play any number of different roles and um, they, they, f they can fit, they're like a Swiss army knife. You know, they could fit in pretty much any category that you want them to. Um, but they're there just to basically make sure the job gets done. And um, they're they're more or less the the warm fuzzy that uh, a company might get in order to basically ensure a project gets done on time and, uh, and on budget and everything. The same thing holds true on a starship too. You know, if if budgets of concern or time is absolutely critical, you put a consultant on it. You know, and the consultant will help make sure that actually achieves that. Damage control engineer. Um, they're more or less uh, responsible for anything um, that can take and distribute uh, the impact of, of any kind of damage, whether or not that's kinetic, kinetically based or energy based. So 
they would, you know, they they could do any number of things, but uh, the primary goal of the engineer is to come up with new ideas um, and prototypes to be able to um, mitigate the risk of damage to any systems and everything. Um, the diagnostic in an engineer on a uh, is kind of like, um, again, in a similar vein as a consultant. They can fit in any number of different places, unlike the consultant, though. Their primary responsibility is figuring out the problems when something, when shit, ha shit hits a fan and nobody else can figure it out. Diagnostic engineer is going to be brought in in order to basically do the troubleshooting. So these guys would be awesome troubleshooters and everything. Uh, guys and gals. And the fabrication engineer, this would be the one responsible for creating parts. So and uh, for creating blueprints for new parts, for creating, um, you know, for working with the people that actually might be drafting that kind of stuff and everything, um, coming up with new ideas for new parts and that kind of stuff. So in most cases, the engineer uh, is responsible for um, some of the research, um, but they're more or less also responsible for the translation of that research into um, something that's tangible, that's workable, and that can actually be built. And this is the fabrications engineer's primary job is to build, you know, whatever it is that they're trying to build and everything. So you bring a fabrication in, engineer in to build a new warp engine. You bring a fabrication engineer to um, to assess the uh, the stresses that uh, a new um, power grid might put on the system and everything, um, or a new um, deflector shield might put on the rest of the ship and everything. So and uh, and also to build it too. So the fabrication engineer would have an awareness of how things fit and where they fit, and and also the um, effects on other systems as well. Um, the maintenance engineer um, is the complement to the fabrication engineer. You know, the maintenance engineer might work with the fabrication engineer through the fabrication process, and uh, they'd more or less be responsible for maintaining these things once they actually went out. You know, because the goal is to, ac to actually keep the fabrication engineer busy on new things, where the maintenance engineer is just there to support the things that are already existing and everything. Um, the matter antimatter specialist. Um, all plant, all ships have um, warp cores, and not only that, but depending on where you travel in space and everything, you're constantly dealing with different equations for mass, for matter, um, for differences in in time and the way time moves and that kind of stuff. Um, and all engines, uh, for at least warp cores and everything, um, have a an expected input and expected outputs and everything when it comes down to the matter antimatter reaction. Matter antimatter reactions is what's responsible for creating a warped reaction, which makes makes warp travel possible. But um, it's these guys' responsibility to pretty much be able to understand, you know, all the, th the equations I don't want to understand. You know, differential equations, the calculus, the physics, and all that stuff and everything that uh, that basically makes it so where, you know, depending on where you're at in space and, and you know, when, um, the, the equations are going to be changing constantly. And uh, these would be the guys and gals that you would go to to be able to get the uh, get the information on a dynamic basis and everything. Um, 
systems engineer. The duty officer for the systems engineer is, and, and I'm trying to think of a real life equivalent for the matter antimatter specialist. And um, these guys, the matter antimatter specialist, would be like the uh, the tuners. Uh, if somebody's, if you're going to get a tune-up and everything, um, I hate to diminish what they're doing and everything because it's a lot more than that. But uh, if you're going to get a, uh, go get a car with a tune-up and everything, um, and also, well, no, actually, this would be a better example. Um, you have somebody that's working on a, uh, on a, on a speed car, on a, um, a race car. Um, you've guys got guys. You have guys out there that are actually responsible for the efficiency of the engine and also the uh, the ability for you know for the race race car driver and everything to deal with whatever climate that he's racing in. So sometimes he could be racing at five thousand feet, you know, um, for elevation. Sometimes even up to seven or eight thousand feet. Sometimes as low as two hundred feet above ground level and everything. Sometimes with high humidity. Sometimes with low humidity. In a very similar vein, the person that would actually be responsible for doing the fine-tuning of that car to basically run optimally, regardless of those conditions and everything, and all those conditions and more, barometric pressure, all this other stuff and everything, is going to make the engine of that car run differently. So in order to, to basically get the most that you possibly can out of the engine and to have the most control, you know, and be ready for any circumstance and everything, that's where a matter, matter antimatter specialist comes in. Same kind of job, but they'd be doing it to a Starcraft, and uh, you know they basically be messing with the matter-antimatter reactions that are occurring on a dynamic basis and everything. Um, on a regular basis, not a dynamic. Dynamics a little bit different. So that moves me forward to the systems engineer. And the systems engineer is the programmer. That's where I would fall in. And um, systems engineer would be responsible for doing everything from systems updates to software updates and that kind of stuff. Or once you're going to put a new version of LCARS in, and uh, the LCARS system is a computer system for all new all starships in the uh, Star Trek universe and everything that are Federation owned. Um, and uh, they'd be responsible for creating updates to the program. They'd be responsible for. Um, more or less doing any of the anything when it comes down to oh gosh you can think about other perspectives and everything systems updates um, holographic uh, the holograms um, the holodeck and everything the programs that are actually running in that um, anything that's actually working with engines, um, basically everything on a starship is run with a computer, the assistance of a computer and everything. Everything on board that starship is. Without the computer, the starship would be dead in the water. So these are really the mission critical folks that, that would be responsible for dealing with those issues on a regular basis and everything on board the starship. And, uh, and also, um, universal translator updates, you know, so sensors updates, um, anything that, uh, let's say they've acquired new information with, uh, you know, that the sensors, uh, sensors folks needs, uh, needs updated on the sensors, boom, they can actually add it to the sensors. Um, log, retrieval, um, encryption, decryption type stuff and everything, that's what these guys would do, is anything concerning computers. 
Um, most of them, I mean, me, you know, for instance, uh, my fun would be in the holodeck. It wouldn't be in the nitty-gritty type stuff and everything. It would be just basically creating entertainment for folks and that kind of stuff. So, um, which Vulcans sorely need, by the way. So, you know, over the past two weeks, I've looked for a Vulcan entertainer. I have yet to find one. I don't think the Vulcans understand entertainment, and I'm suspecting that's why there's such a severe limitation to holodeck offerings. Um, so anyways, um, another duty officer for the engineering department is the technician. So the technician would be responsible for working across a different variety of areas, and um, they're there to basically do the grunt work. You know, I'm going to put it like it is. I mean, in a lot of cases, these guys are highly overpaid. You know, because they're doing a lot of work that a lot of people don't want to. Um, but in general sense, they're doing, you know, the assembly. Um, you know, so you got different components and everything that go in, um, blueprints that are actually need to be assembled and everything, all the way to testing um, and automation of, of type stuff and everything, um, all the way to long hours of uh, and late night hours of, of doing doing stuff and everything. And this is what the technician would is is doing. They're more or less the, uh, in my personal experience, particularly over at Orbital and everything, these are the partiers. These are the guys that you want to hang out with if you're going to go out and go party in in, uh, in Mexico or in a planet that's actually a kind of a hedonistic planet and everything. These are good guys, I mean, in my opinion. Some of the best, in my opinion, too. And a little bit less uptight, but, you know, pretty smart dudes, too. Um... So that's what the technicians do. They take what the fabrication engineers are doing, they make sure all the nuts go where they're supposed to, um, rivets go where they're supposed to, um, they do the honeycomb assemblies, they do you name it. They're responsible for putting things together on the starship. The warp core engineer, probably one of the most critical parts of the ship, um, besides the computer systems and everything, is the, uh, the engine itself. And, um, I like to think about the um, the systems engineering as being the nervous system, and the uh, warp core engineer as being the heart. Um, the mind is definitely the captain. So, the warp core engineer is more or less um, responsible for the health and, and continued maintenance of the engine. You know, so... Um, while the matter-antimatter specialist may be responsible for coming up with the efficiency equations and that kind of stuff that's actually going to feed into it, um, what the warp core engineer is responsible for is the dynamic maintenance of this thing. You know, so he's these are the Scotties. You know, that uh, when you need more warp power and everything. Um, they're the ones that figure shit out on the fly, and they will get it done now. You know, the matter antimatter specialists, they're the ones that are, you know, they're doing the, the numbers and everything um, inside their, you know, their cabins or, you know, and what was it, the um, t 10 forward and that kind of stuff. That's that's where they'd be doing this. But the warp core engineers, they're the ones that are actually getting their hands dirty. Something goes wrong inside the warp core, boom, they're there. Um, they want it, they're checking things on a regular basis. They're finding out uh, the flows of and distribution of energy throughout the systems and everything. EPS conduits, you name it. They are responsible for the energy distribution, um, acquisition and distribution um, through the warp core itself and everything. So they are the energy providers for the entire system. 
and as a result they have a pretty critical job. Um, next we get into operations. Um, the deflector. The deflector is more or less the one that's responsible. Um, I'm going to throw this out there. I could be corrected. No, I'm just going to stick to this. I'm going to actually I'm going to look up and see. Now my my net instinct is to say these are the guys that are actually responsible for the shields and officer. Yeah, funny thing. Yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah, so, yeah, the deflector officer is responsible for the shields and uh, also for special effects that uh, that actually the ship's capable of. So, if a shield ha or if a uh, ship has a uh, tractor beam, um, they, or if they can actually throw certain effects and that kind of stuff, there's something called Tykin's Rift, um, the capability to create uh, point singularities and that kind of stuff and everything. That's where the deflector officer comes in. Uh, they're more responsible for the shields and for the continued maintenance of the shields and also for the hull itself and uh, the, the wealth inherent and care and welfare. So more or less if you're if you can analogize this to human body, the skin is called the epidermis and everything, that's what the deflectors are for. You know, they're there to more or less basically say, hey, you know, that ship you know, it has some vital components and everything, and the, you know, the skin is considered an organ by many, you know, so this is what the, these guys are responsible for. The explosive experts um, for the operations are responsible for the, um, any ordnance. So anything that has an explosive element to it. There are grenades on board the ship. Um, you know, there's frag, frag grenades, there's um, photon grenades, there's um, various different forms. There's also photonic torpedoes. Um, anything that has a capability to cause an exploding effect. And it's not just limited to, <laughs> you know, here's the funny thing. A lot of these starships actually are civilian support vessels. And with that, they carry fireworks. They carry um, other things, propane, um, different chemicals and stuff like this, you know, because of the fact that they're actually ferrying in a lot of cases, we're not always at war, you know, so these guys are actually ferrying equipment and, and materials and everything, and, you know, that could be um, dynamite for, you know, for mining operations um, and other forms of explosives and everything for mining operations all the way to chemicals for cooking um, and that kind of stuff. These, the explosive experts would be responsible for making sure that they were stored right, um, that they weren't stored next to chemicals or something else that can uh, cause explosive effects and that kind of stuff. Anything that could potentially, that won't knowingly cause a, an explosion or that could potentially cause an explosion, they're just simply aware of the chemical reactivity of things and and in particular, not being able to, not make, or making sure that, you know, things that are put in certain places don't go there, particularly in inventory and that kind of stuff. You know, um, also, you know, it could also be people, you know, chefs, you know, they're actually making things inside tin forward. You know, um, Neelix ended up having the, uh, you know, he ended up cooking inside tin forward and everything. 
And that actually forced a, uh, a refit of uh, 10 forward and everything to be safe, you know, to make sure that, uh, you know, he actually did have a, a fire there. And uh, they ended up having to go through and actually, you know, bring an explosive expert through to make sure that that shit didn't happen again. That didn't get worse. It did get pretty bad, so... The flight deck officer is the one that's actually responsible for um, maintaining sanity, um, just managing the bridge and the bridge operations and that kind of stuff. I mean, the captain ultimately is the go-to person or everything, but this person's responsible for, you know, for everything that's, you know, for making sure that those people that are actually manning the flight deck and everything have everything they need. You know, so um, I would actually refer to this as kind of like a, an operations manager, somebody that's um, helping people out, making sure everybody has what they need, um, making sure the place is clean. Um, they, you know, every and and also not just not just the bridge, you know, but I'm also talking about the uh, the flight deck itself, you know. So anything that has um, the shuttles, you know, um, the, they've got two different areas of responsibility and everything. And um, why I'm saying, you know, the flight deck is, you know, there's joint operations here. Flight deck is considered two se two separate things and everything. So you got these these people are responsible for taking care of both. Now I'm getting a little bit of objection objection to this in ways I can't explain right now. Um, and they're saying that the flight deck officer is strictly um, that one responsible for keeping shuttle shuttle bays clean and. Um, and also any any vessels that can be flown into and out of the uh, the starship itself would also would be the only thing considered in the flight deck. I'll take that. So go ahead and um, maybe we just need somebody else that's actually managing the uh, the bridge and everything. So I just you know I'm not talking about. Uh, You do need to bridge operations. That's what could happen. It could be a round robin type thing. I'll keep a good staff on for uh, for the flight deck operations, but uh, somebody will be responsible, and we'll have a junior staff that'll be responsible for actually helping out with the bridge operations. You know, it will be a welcome break, guaranteed. You got to think about this from their perspective. You're helping out bridge officers, you know, hanging out with uh, the people that are actually in charge of the ship and everything. You know, in contrast to having to sweep the uh, the deck of a flight floor all the fucking time, you're gonna be enjoying that. So, flight deck officer will be responsible for both. Let's keep it that way. Just one will be assigned to the uh, to the bridge at any given time and everything to assist with it, and might even give them a duty station and everything. Let them pick up on it. Let them cross train to other things if they want to. Um, hazard system officer. This would be the one that would be responsible for making sure everything is working like it so it should. Eye washes and chemical contaminant zones, um, ability for clean rooms to actually be cleaned, also be uh, 
you know, have proper capabilities to be able to put things out, you know, such as fire extinguishers and that kind of stuff. Um, the uh, availability for systems that are actually do extinguish any kind of fires and everything to be working and checked on on a regular basis and everything. Um, red alert systems, alert systems altogether are going to be tested regularly and everything and uh, made sure they're working. This would be the hazard system officers responsible responsibility across the board. Anything that is both proactive and reactive to hazards of any kind that occur within the ship and everything. That's where this officer comes in. Quartermaster. This one should be pretty obvious. This is the one that's responsible for maintaining a map of who's assigned where. Um, state of the quarters and everything. You know, since this is considered a, a military vessel primarily, um, and because of problems that can occur that can very, very quickly escalate to cause problems in nearby cabins, there has to be daily inspections, or, or not daily inspections, but regular inspections of quarters and everything. And uh, I, I don't want to be strict about this. You know, for me, this is a lesson learned in, um, in the military. You know, there's one thing... Um, having having somebody come through your quarters and everything and having to go through your personal shit, you know. Um, but it's entirely another going in and finding your shit fucked with on a regular basis. You know, so I, for me it was the type of thing that uh, going through this, um, I saw the need for uniformity, you know, in maintenance from a maintenance perspective and everything, um, maybe a limitation of customization for junior officers and that kind of stuff of the quarters. Um, but the quartermaster would be responsible for in, in reinforcing policy across the board, you know, for the starship and also for basically assignment of, um, of quarters. So that would be the quartermaster's responsibility, and also, you know, the maintenance and, and the clean, you know, the cleaning of these facilities and everything once you've had a change, you know. So ultimately, you know, the person that's actually leaving should be responsible, but that's not always going to be the case. Um, so it would be the quartermaster's responsibility to go in there and take care of business and everything. Um, sensors officer, they are the ones that are responsible for. Leveraging the sensors. Um, Rain Robinson, um, special kudos to you and everything. Thank you for selecting my ship and for selecting me. I'm honored, uh, you know, that uh, you decide to do this and everything. And um, I don't know, there's a lot to be said about you. And, uh, anyways, um, with that said, so she's uh, Rain Robinson was on. Um, she was featured in uh, Voyager, and uh, that's when she became familiar with starships altogether and everything, and the existence of uh, Starfleet and everything. And um, she has been looking for a ship for quite some time and everything. And uh, you know, I've she's selected me, I've selected her and everything. And uh, she is a, a sensors officer, and she's very, very, very good with computers, and that's actually why I wanted her 
You know, she was very quick about uh, understanding when her system was fucked with and by who and everything. And uh, that's how she came came about the discovery of, um, of more or less the inhabitants, you know, of the USS Discovery and everything on planet Earth. And uh, how they had come back in time and everything. So... In any case, the sensors officer is responsible for the maintenance um, and also the, the leverage and use of the sensors um, that could sense anything. So it could be visual sensors, it could be um, sound, it could be wave-based, um, it could be radio-based, which is what she's used to and everything. Um, different, uh, taking all that information and forming it into something where they can actually tell, you know, give us information on a regular basis and everything about about the surrounding environment, both short range and long range. So, for instance, um, let's say you're actually doing a sensor sweep of a uh, of an incoming vessel and everything. Well, first off, we're going to, we're going to want to know how many occupants on, on it. Um, second, you know, we're going to, going to want to know, um, is it loaded? You know, does it, uh, <laughs> do they come with weapons? And if so, um, do we have any concern? Is there any way, immediate way we can actually tell whether or not to perceive them as a threat or not? Um, you know, do we have species? You know, that uh, species awareness and everything. The sensors would hopefully be able to give us a pretty quick snapshot of any incoming vessel and everything, and uh, that would be the responsibility of the sensors officers to be able to take a massive amount of data real fast and, and to be able to get some basics from it. You know, um, Similarly, you know, if we're actually scanning a planet, does it have any life forms? Known life forms. You know, life forms versus known life forms are two different things altogether. Um, what type of life forms are they? You know, are they humanoid? Um, environmental conditions. You know, um, is it uh, what? What's the atmosphere like? Um, I mean, this this can go on and everything. So that's that's what the sensors officers w would be responsible for is not only figuring out how to actually get the sensors to achieve this and, and what parts and that kind of stuff in order to be able to make make the uh, starship work like this um, but also how to actually take that on a real-time basis and provide that translation and everything you know we can't wait you know six hours you know it's like in what you did with the uh, recognizing that there was a starship in orbit that's exactly why I wanted you you know, you had the capability to very quickly tell, you know, there's there's something out there and everything. And boom, you ended up telling somebody about it. Well, I mean, unfortunately it led to the sequence of events that made me aware of you. And fortunately it did at the same time, too. So, Rain, thank you again. And, uh, I don't know, you know, I look forward to meeting you in person. Um, and, uh, so we've got um, Tractor Beam Officer. Um, tractor Beam Officer is responsible for um, anything that uh, that more or less the tractor beam itself is is a device that pulls something from a distance to the starship and everything. So the Tractor Beam Officer would be responsible for. I mean, all these officers are going to be responsible for peer training, and uh, I do expect there to be a hierarchy. So, you know, for Rain, for instance, you're you're what's considered a kind of like a um, a manager, um, potentially even a direct. Now, you'd be more manager, a, a manager level uh, type of person, or everything, 
and um, you'd be responsible for training some people and everything to be able to do what you do, and uh, maybe not be like you, but you know to understand the equipment and everything like you do. And, and uh, so the tractor beam officer is responsible for the acquisition of things at a distance, leveraging the tractor beam. Um, the pushing and pulling of objects away. If there's an asteroid that's too close and we're in a stationary position or something like that, you know, tractor beam would be responsible for pushing it away. Um, you know, let's say there's, uh, you know, we're interested in pulling in an asteroid. Well, not only would, you know, you be responsible for pulling that object in, you know, but you'd also be responsible for pulling it, you know, into potentially a cargo bay. Um, something that we can actually look at it and physically touch it and everything, you know, after we've actually acquired it. Um, vessels, you know, might need tractor beamed in order to basically put them into a stationary position if they're trying to actually warp away. You would, uh, you would understand the kinesthetics and uh, the um, the momentum and the forces and everything to be able to counter any, counteract any attempts to actually get away. So that would be the tractor beams uh, officer's responsibility. Um, I would actually focus, if I, if I were you, with the tractor beam and everything, um, do holodeck simulations and uh, make it a fact to, um, I like the idea of, of analyzing, I mean, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a geologist, you know, when it comes down to it, and I want to know more about rocks and that kind of stuff, and um, I'm fascinated, you know, with rocks myself. Now, I don't have enough knowledge about this stuff and everything myself, you know, but uh, if I can actually say one thing I wouldn't mind doing, um, I would I would love to be able to go explore and uh, just really take samples of rocks and, you know, that are orbiting different planets and everything and understand the, you know, the, the composition of these things, not just at a chemical level, but at an energy level, you know, the composition of rocks down below. Um, I'm a firm lover of, uh, you know, basically magic and Harry Potter and, you know, um, just things that uh, that are like that and everything. And there's a couple rocks that are called, uh, that are magical stones um, in some of the video games that I've, I've played in the past. Malachite um, is one of them, Star Ruby is another one. Um, another one's called uh, Lapis Lazuli, uh, and it goes on. And these, these rocks have qualities about them that uh, allow the, the human the capability, um, interesting capabilities with these rocks and everything. Well, I myself would love to go look for these rocks. You know, I suspect some of them are orbit orbiting planets. Um, maybe even by asteroids and that kind of stuff. Um, do they naturally form on planets and everything? I don't know. But the tractor beam officer, you're going to be helping. I mean, it's gonna, it, it could be, to be potentially boring to you. You know, so you're gonna have to make the best of it. Um, but the acquisition of different rocks, of a variety of rocks and everything, and um, I don't know, you know, just how is it you can actually single, you know, turn it into a game if you want to, you know, single track, a single rock, you know, that, uh, that we just happen to pinpoint, you know, that's different than all the rest and everything, and pulling that puppy in. Um, the other thing, too, is just um, the ability to be able to manipulate things um, from a material perspective and everything. I like the idea of, you know, distant 
um, being able to do things from a distance and everything with tractor beams and everything. Can you, you know, um, leverage this to basically leave messages on planets? You don't have to go down to the planet and everything. Just leverage the tractor beam to manipulate rocks and everything to leave a message from space. The Nazca lines are a good for instance. You know, if you can actually leave a mes message like the Nazca lines on selected planets and everything, just basically to say, hey, we were here. You know, um, it could be just something, you know, something screwy that we can do and everything. Draw pictures on, on planets and that kind of stuff. Well, one of the one of the most interesting, or something for me. I want you to understand. Anybody, it's actually going to be underneath my command and everything. Um, I'm not going to be your typical captain. You know, I'm going to be probably going to ask you to do some weird things. You know. Um, Marine, you know, I can tell you right now, you know, I like the idea of having some fun with you. You gotta make that okay. You know, there will be a version out, out there of you that will. Um, similarly, you know, <laughs> drawing lines on planets, you know, um, holodeck programming that's just, you know, some weird simulations. Um, I just, I want to have fun with this. Not just in a perverted way, that's going to be a part of it, but also in a way that I I want to get away from the the whole I've seen a lot of sterile you know storytelling and everything on with the uh, the captains of the starship and everything and and I like the memory you know of Captain Kirk and some of the funky shit that uh, that he did and I suspect that time and and a lot of those stories have changed and everything I like the idea of creating some original ones of my own and everything and being okay with that. You know, sure, I may, some people may view me as a misogynist or something like that. I'm fine with that. You know, but I'm also going to do some other weird shit. And if that's the only thing that you focus on, well, I mean, that's, that's kind of a pity. But, um, you know, the tractor beam officer, um, throw a rock in the air. I mean, literally, throw it in the air. I want you to be able to make that rock levitate literally make it levitate because one of the things I'd like to do is experiments with uh, populations let's say we go to a population to, that's you know we're not going to you know show them anything from a pre-industrial civilization you know we're not going to you know, screw up with the prime directive I mean that's one of my goals is to is to not break the rules but it doesn't say anything about uh, you know presenting to them magical capabilities and everything so maybe we use a tractor beam to make it appear like I'm, I'm a magician capable of levitating something. You know, I like the idea of using technology in such a way to actually inspire people's imagination in cultures and places that we go to and everything. You know, and you're going to be one of the absolutely crucial pieces to this puzzle. That and the transporter officer. You know, so one's telekinetic and capabilities. That's what the, tra the tractor beam officer does. Um, the other, the transporter officer, you know, you're going to be responsible for teleporting shit. Not only do I want you to focus on distance and everything, but I also want you to focus on strange combinations. You know, we may be experimenting with genetic type stuff and everything. Let's try some stuff out and everything. You've seen the movie The Fly, if not, watch it. You know, um, I want you to understand, you know, some of the, con the, not necessarily concerns, but some of the things that uh, that we might be working with and everything, you know, particularly when we're coming off planets where we don't fully understand what we're dealing with and everything. 
you know, I want you to be aware of these things, you know, without hesitation, but I don't want your job to be boring. I like the idea of giving you some, you know, some ideas and things to try out and everything, you know, some experiments. And, um, you know, what I'm thinking of immediately is, I mean, sure, you've got the capability to teleport that rock inside. Well, here's one thing we can do. At the same time it's being tractor beamed inside, take another that's just like it and teleport it inside. And then work with the geologist to do comparative analysis of the two different rocks and everything and make the determination. Are we seeing any differences in the teleported rock versus the, um, the one that's been tractor beamed inside? Do you see any compositional differences? Um, any atomic level differences? You know, is there any differences when it comes down to frictional forces? Um, in forces period from a physical perspective and everything. My bet is um, you will be seeing differences, but I don't know what that is. That's my suspicion. You know, so you're going to have to be working, you know, whenever the tractor beam officers called for, you know, to be able to obtain samples of something outside and everything. I'd like you to work with them to basically get the same kind of samples and everything of similar materials or, you know, within the same sample area, you know, and just basically for comparative analysis. So, in any case, um, you know, it's just one of those things that's just like, hey, what's this universe that we're working with and everything? And not only that, but to be aware, more aware, of what's happening with the technology that we're leveraging in order to be able to achieve this. You know, because here's the thing, you know, you're, you're leveraging the technology and everything through the supply chain and everything that's been provided to you that you probably have no idea the internals. I mean, you may have an idea, you know, but do you, are you 100% sure in everything? You know, so you receive results with one set of technology, try it with a different set of technology. You know, different transporters. You might have different transporters that are actually responsible for doing different things. Try it out. You know, just see. You know, and, and then, you know, when, and then, you know, there's another potential here, too. So the tractor beam pulls it in one way. You know, you pull it in another way. Send out a shuttle. Go collect a sample directly. You know, is there a difference between any of the, between these three samples altogether? You know, the comparative analysis of samples and everything is something I'm really, 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 really keen on doing. You know, acquiring samples through different mechanisms. You know, so that's actually why I'm saying from a tractor beam perspective and everything, can you acquire planetary samples and everything and then go down to the planet and everything um, physically and acquire samples that way and bring it back up? Do you see any difference between the samples? My bet is you will, particularly at an atomic level. You know, and um, not and something that won't be able to be explained away too easily, you know, by basically pointing the finger and saying, hey, you know, it's it's because of, you know, the um, manipulation of atoms. I mean, you're going to get to the point that you start realizing that you're making up too many excuses and telling too many stories. And those stories are starting to fall apart. There's other explanations here. You know, and that's just because there's key differences between the, the, the methods of acquisition and everything. Those method, methods of acquisition are actually exhibiting those differences. So, in any case, um, and really what it comes down to is the purity of the sample. You know, plain and simple. You know, what's, what's a more pure way? You know, and, you know, um, you may not necessarily need a pure sample, you know, but to be aware of what a pure sample is, you know, um, or more aware of what a pure sample is versus, um, I mean, it's just like me with cooking. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm just purchased uh, some imitation vanilla the other day. My mom can't tell the difference. 
you know, between that and the, and the real vanilla. Well, I can. You know, I mean, there's a pretty profound difference in everything. And all it takes is one teaspoon. Now, I can tell the difference. My mom can't. You know, so, you know, her, you know, she's fine with the imitation. You know, and me, you know, I taste the difference. You know, there's a, a little bit of substance texture difference between the the end product and everything when it's been dissolved inside of a, inside a pudding. <laughs> Isn't that weird? You know, cooking, you know, has given me this little insight into the chemical analysis of, a, of something and everything and made me realize, wow, you know, that's, that's pretty profound that that small chemical, you know, only one teaspoon of it into a huge batch. And you could taste it? Wow, that's crazy. So anyways, I'm suspecting that the same thing's potentially true, you know, with um, with other samples too. Now, to give you an example of this, um, I've, I've thought for, for a long time and everything um, that Chinese, the quality of, uh, of Chinese goods and services, or goods especially, um, has been suspect, you know, where it's been problematic and everything, particularly some of the watches and the metals and everything that have been, um, that I've gotten from over there. Like, I bought this tag watch. It was a knockoff tag watch and everything. And, um, I mean, the quality was just horrible. Absolutely horrible and everything. Well, you know, um, let's just say chemically, you know, from an atomic perspective and everything, the mass on it is considerably less than the mass of, uh, of a real tag watch and everything. You know, um, that's one potential for, you know, for the quality of something. So, and here's a similar thing, too. Let's say you're getting, um, you know, different, uh, different dilithium delivers, you know, somebody that's actually supplying dilithium and everything. You know, I, I'd suspect that you're actually seeing differences in performance and everything based on the dilithium that you're actually using. You know, and uh, you can actually do a, a chemical analysis or a, uh, a material analysis on the dilithium in it itself to actually understand, you know, what you're getting from different suppliers and everything, and some can be replicated, you know, dilithium. So what I'm saying is, you know, if you're actually doing this, um, this chemical analysis and everything and uh, this atomic analysis, you know, from an energy perspective level and everything, and um, you're, my advice is take different samples, you know, work with the sensor's officer, you know, to help refine the sensor readings, right? That's where you come in. And then just make the de determination of everything, you know, and, and help refine the capability to be able to acquire the information with the sensors, you know, help make that more accurate, more capable, you know, more, I don't know, locked on. So, I've been talking forever, it's already 12.57 and I'd planned on watching Twilight Zone, but uh, I already went through the science. The last one's medical. Um, and, and again, um, for the transporter officer, you're not just going to be transporting people. I mean, that's going to be one of your primary functions, sure, but the uh, transporter officer, we're also going to be, you know, I'm going to make it a fact, you know, to, to do material uh, comp, uh, material acquisitions and everything. Now, here's one of the things that's really important to me. Theft. Um, I'm not going to stand for it, period, end of story. And um, I've seen Tom Paris and, um, you know, working under Janeway and everything. Um, and Janeway said, do what you need to in order to be able to, you know, get to that place and everything. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to say do what you need to. You know, um, we're going to have mission failures. And I may not like it at times. 
you know, um, and I will fire people on occasion too. You know, just because you're actually, you know, on a on a vessel that's a military-based vessel and everything, I've got an exchange that I can actually, you know, I'm going to be starting to mark down names, <clears throat> you know, once I acquire a full complement and everything, and uh, I'm going to start paying attention to the names of, of those people that are regularly failing. Right now, I don't care, you know, because all I'm interested in doing is is acquiring experience and everything. You know, and also um, materials and resources and that kind of stuff. But uh, once I get to the point of having a full complement, I'm at 244 right now, and, and 300 is a full complement. Um, at that point, I'm going to actually create a spreadsheet, and I'm actually going to have, have a list of names and uh, a list of the projects you know that everybody's on. And uh, if I see a failure, I'm going to mark down that this is a failure. Now, one thing I'm I'm not seeing at all. You know, um, is in a reasonable explanation on a regular basis of the successes and fails. These are rote, canned, you know, um, messages and everything. And I know that you're capable of more. Now, so here's the thing. Um, first off, you know, I'm going to start finding, uh, and, and this is the thing, what's really important to me. If you can't name names, I will start keeping a list of the names that are associated with the problems that are occurring and everything. And if we have too many failures, and, and the failures are happening um, for what I consider to be the wrong reasons, which is subject to change, then, yeah, we'll put it this way, if, you're, if you throw up a, um, an assignment to me that I've never seen in everything, and the assignment looks pretty damn cool. I like the idea of it and everything. And, um, you know, I, I say yes. I, I okay it and everything. And that comes back a failure. Yeah, you know, tell me about it. You know, what's the story? What happened? Um, you know, if this happens repeatedly and you never have any successes and everything, well, I'm going to... I will... You know... The problem is the interface that I have, I, I don't have that many responses other than to shit can you. I mean, if you provide me more capabilities to be able to demote you, you know, to be able to um, alter your assignments or that kind of stuff, or, I mean, I can certainly put you on different assignments. You know, the shit assignments and everything. And, um, you know, with that, it's just like, okay, you know, I'll, that's one possibility and everything. You know, but uh, I will start taking note and everything, and those that are actually doing well, I'll give some of the choice assignments to, that I view are choice assignments. So, in any case, um, all I'm saying is, you know, I'd just like to see more information and everything, and if somebody keeps on not performing and, and failing in every project that I place them on and everything, well, eventually I'm going to get to the point where it's just like, hey, I've got a lot of other people I can actually pick from the exchange. Yeah, I might have to let you go. So, in any case, I'm um, going through the medical, the biochemist. This is the one that's responsible for understanding um, biology and the, uh, and the relationship it has to chemistry. It's really simple and everything. Um, I shouldn't say it's simple. It's fucking hard. I had a bitch of a time going through biology. 
and uh, genetics. So this would be the person that's responsible for understanding genetic, genetic engineering, um, the biology and the uh, the relationship biology has to chemistry at a uh, at that level and everything, and um, the influences that uh, that any substances, particularly artificial substances and everything. Um, this could include, but uh, not be limited to, Borg nanoprobes and all this other fun stuff and everything, pharmaceuticals, um, psychological, you know, manipulation, um, anything, you know, stress-related and that kind of stuff, ailments. Um, this, the biochemist would would be keenly aware of the of the physical makeup of the body and the uh, chemical makeup of the body and uh, the processes of the body and uh, being able to map that. Um, right now I would say keep the focus on humans and uh, we'd have other people that would be responsible for xeno uh, type stuff and everything. Um, this person would be, I mean because I've got nothing more, nothing but a human contingent here, um, this is going to be focused on humans. So, human biology, human chemistry, um, organic chemistry, and that kind of stuff. And, and sure, of course, you're going to have some understanding of as much as possible um, of other different uh, species and that kind of stuff. You know, dogs and cats and that kind of stuff, since we don't have veterinary sciences and since I will be allowing, you're going to hate me, dogs on board, not cats. Um, I'm allergic to cats, so my apologies. Um, I might change that later to include cats. But uh, definitely not the little fuzzy fucking tribbles. Those fucking things annoy me. And, uh, yeah, so dogs will definitely be allowed and everything. So, as a biochemist, I would hope that you're actually aware of, um, of animal uh, interactions as well, not just limited to the dogs and, and, and house pets and that kind of stuff. Um, counselor, they're the psychiatrists, they're the psychologists, they're the ones that are trained in, in the mind and um, helping the mind um, problem solve. These are the life coaches, these are um, the ones that have some kind of training um, from any number of different perspectives and everything. Like I said, a life coach is more external facing, um, proactive, goal oriented, and everything, or psychologists, psychiatrists might tend to be a little bit more internal focused, problem solving, that kind of stuff. So that's what the counselor would be responsible for. The doctor is to the biochemist what the um, technician is to the engineer. Um, but that's not even a fair statement because the doctor requires so much more education and everything. Um, the doctor's theory, or the biochemist is more theory-based, process-based, where the doctor is, this is where the rubber meets the road. Um, what's going on with the physical body and everything? Somebody comes into sick bay and everything. This is the, the doc doctor's responsible for helping them. Broken bones, mending them, um, you know, bruises, um, rashes, um, unknown ailments, and that kind of stuff. That's what the doctor's there for. You know, is to keep the crew safe and uh, and sick and uh, free of sickness and ill health and everything, and um, you know, curing and mending. So that's what the doctor's there for. Um, the medic is something I cannot hire for for some reason. 
I'm going to look at it real quick and see. Um, right now it's nothing more than a contingent of Klingons and basically nothing that uh, is oops, hireable by me. Um, I want to see this change. We need proactive. No. Doctors more can be proactive or reactive. We need more reactive health care. People that can actually get out there and respond to a medical emergency and everything. The doctor, doctor's more um, passive. You go there when you've got something that may not be life-threatening and everything. Where the medic is somebody that would be there if you have an emergency. Um, heart attack, for instance. Stroke. Um, somebody's, you know, literally on the ground with an arm severed in, in the field. Um, nasty, I know, but this is what the medic would be there for. According to this, there's no medics that are listed. I want to see this change. I want to see Federation-based medics. I'm just saying, so hopefully this changes. I've never seen anything but medics for others where it doesn't make sense. You need medics for, you know, for the Federation. Um, I mean, here on the planet, these would be the MTs, really. You know, they'd be able to keep the person bandaged up just enough to get them to the doctor and everything. And the doctor could then take a look at it, because the doctor's typically going to have a lot more equipment. They're going to be confined to the sick bays and that kind of stuff in a general sense. And uh, that's where they do the real work and everything, the field-type stuff and everything. Um, that would be reserved for somebody that's more trained in emergency situations and everything. The helicopters and that kind of stuff. Um, and then finally, there's the nurse. And the nurse is just there to help the doctor. Um, to assist with uh, the patients and everything, the patients' needs and that kind of stuff, and uh, just basically the morale. They're they're kind of like the glue, you know, the ones that uh, sometimes the doctor may not have a great bedside manner just simply because there's too much going on, and that's where the nurse comes in. The nurse is just there to help support the whole thing and everything. So, anyways, that about sums it up. I know I've been wordy and everything, but I do want to see medics. Know, with all this and everything and I think I've covered everything so I talked about photonic studies research lab scientist and the warp theorist I want to make sure I hit on the warp theorist because I'm not too sure if I actually hit on that well before um, the duty officer for the science the warp theorist um, I know I, I'm pretty sure I did discuss it. I'm going to reiterate, though. They're the ones that are actually particular when they're traveling around and everything. And um, I see a lot right now as I'm traveling through um, through the Alpha and the Beta Quadrant and everything. Hiccups. You know, weird shit that's actually happening out there. Um, you know, like I came, came across unknown territory um, the other day or actually it was today as a matter of fact, and uh, didn't have any markings or anything like that. Now, um, the warp theorist, um, they'd be responsible for working with some of the sensors officers and everything um, to be able to try to figure out in some cases, um, is there any other ways to perceive these, um, 
perceive these worlds and these things that we're seeing as anomalies and everything? Um, do we have alternative methods, alternative ways that we had never mentioned before? You know, and you'd be looking at the sensors in order to be able to find this information out. You know, just basically looking at the information that you acquire from the sensors, and maybe even even through your own senses too. You know, visual, um, hearing, and that kind of stuff acoustically. One thing I've certainly picked up on as I've traveled through feder uh, through the space and everything is different areas, particularly blank nothing areas, have different acoustical information, uh, dist different weird acoustics that are actually occurring with it. So in some cases, I feel like, hey, if you dilated time a little bit, you know, you took a sample of it and you stretched out time and you listened to that sample can you actually get something that's discernible as speech or something like that? Um, if you compress time a little bit, you know, for that uh, pattern. So let's say, for instance, you take a 20-second sample, <clears throat> you know, of, uh, and it's a high, high, high-resolution sample. And uh, let's say you stretched that 20-second sample, scaled it to occur um, over a period of maybe 20 minutes. Um, you know, at that point, the resolution would obviously be decreased on a per-second basis and everything, but, you know, the chances are you could potentially pick up information and everything and maybe even, you know, understand that time is moving differently for that sampled area and uh, potentially um, faster, you know, than it is, um, it, it is from your listening perspective and everything. And as a result, you know, um, you might actually be able to hear what they're saying and everything if you were to be able to slow down time. Um, you know, so, and that just comes down to being able to alter the, ver uh, alter the uh, information that's coming through temporally and, uh, and making sure, the big thing is ab obviously making sure that you're able to, you know, have high resolution samples that you're taking or everything. You know, not just visual sample or not just, uh, you know, oral samples or audible samples, but also samples of energy, samples of waveforms. Um, you know, stretching these things, you know, both contracting and expanding these things is absolutely crucial. You know, I'm suspecting that a lot of these anomalies and everything are, are going to be, if you're simply to scale time, you know, um, are just simply deviances in time and everything, and uh, what sounds like um, inaudible, an inaudible pattern and everything um, may actually be somebody's voice and everything, sending out uh, information that, uh, that you're capturing and you're hearing. So, in any case, um, the warp theorists, you would be responsible for, um, in a lot of cases, I would actually say, um, taking ideas and information and, uh, and exploring, and, and in particular, um, current unknowns, and trying to find out and discover um, alternative possibilities and explanations for why it's occurring like it is. That's a whole, I mean, warping space is also warping time. And um, the warping of time in itself, you know, can cause some dilated problems and everything. So I would expect you to be able to find that out and everything. So, yeah, so warping space isn't just warping space, it's warping time. That's, that's the important thing to think about there from a warp theory perspective. You know, and uh, not only that, it's also warping things in size and dimension as well. You know, so as you know, um, you know, you're to warp space and come from planet Earth, and you look at it from above, and it appears like a tiny little ball down below. You know, you can almost touch that ball and everything. Well, 
That's one method of warping, you know, is, is through physical space dimensions and everything. But there's also time that things could be warped in as well. You know, so you can have something that, um, you know, maybe from a relativistic perspective and everything, you know, time's appearing to you, you know, to be, you know, moving at a set rate and everything. Well, not everything moves comparatively at the same rate of time that you do. So, if you dilate the samples that you receive accordingly and adjust it, you, my bet is you're going to find more information in those patterns. So, anyways, I'm going to log out and watch Twilight Zone and hit the sack. Have a good night. Let me add on that last point a little bit more, Tim. Um, not everything. Um, okay, so let's say you're measuring something, you know, a visual event and everything, and uh, you're seeing things happen at a, you know, from your perspective and everything, at, uh, at an increment of one second, and um, you make the assumption that one second passes for you, and one second passes for the thing that you're observing as well. You know, so the, the in other words, the perspective, the perception of the flow of time relative to that which you are observing is moving at the same rate of speed that it is moving for you. That's a commonly accepted thing and everything. Um, but what if that's not the case? Um, what if, you know, your method of measuring time and everything, um, you know, gives you an observation about events that happen and everything? Um, but let's say, you know, you're watching a second of somebody's life, and for them, Ten years goes by. Now, I learned this lesson kind of a first-hand way, in a hard way, and everything. And um, it's it's something that's rather difficult to prove and everything. Um, but what I'm suspecting is, if you actually pay attention to planetary movement and that kind of stuff, um, if you actually dilate time. Um, and then tinker with the extraneous other properties that you have taken for a given and everything. Let's take Mercury as a great example. To me, here on planet Earth and everything, um, time moves at a certain rate of speed and everything. And um, let's say you go over to Mercury and uh, you're to actually try to walk on planet on, on the Mercury and everything. Well, Mercury is going to be 400 degrees and everything. But let's say you slow down time. Well, the assumption that, that one might make is that it's still going to be hotter than hell, right? You know, I mean, even if you slowed down time, it's still going to be hotter than hell. Well, that's not necessarily the case, you know, um, because heat as energy is dependent on the flow of energy from one place to another over a certain period of time. And if you alter time and slow it down, the exchange of energy will also slow down accordingly. Does that make sense? So as a result, what could be 400 degrees if you simply slowed down time? You can actually see the planet and walk on the planet 
and it's 80 degrees. Not only that, but light moves at a certain rate of speed over time. The acquisition of light, of photonics and everything, will be different because the information that comes across is going to be dilated accordingly. I mean, your eyes receive, you know, certain wavelength and everything. And um, while I don't have as easy a time explaining it, the wavelength itself, you know, I mean, here's the, here's the concept and idea and everything. Um, you know, don't make the assumption that light itself, you know, light light has a certain amount of information that crosses over the eyes and everything. And uh, I'm trying to think of a good way to put this and everything, but my suspicion is that light itself, you will actually be seeing different things, you know, because of the way that light's actually received across the uh, across the lens of the eye and everything. That's my suspicion. And I can't explain it as easily as I can the, uh, the whole idea of temperature. Temperature's a little bit more obvious to me. You know, you slow down the exchange of energy and everything, heat energy, you know, over that period of time, well, there's simply less energy that's actually coming across. So as a result, you know, what, what might be hot, you know, is actually going to be, you know, kind of cool. You know, and, and here's actually put this in contrast and everything. Um, let's say you've got a nuclear bomb that goes off. But let's say you slow down time. So we're for every... Um, every second, you instead reduce that to one one millionth, or for every one one millionth of a second, now becomes a second. So, you don't have a nuclear bomb anymore, instead you've just got a light breeze. It's kind of tricky, right? You know, this light breeze is, you know, to some, a devastating blast and everything, depending on, on your perspective. So, in any case, um, that's my suggestion is to just take into consideration the relativity of time with the sample of the information that you're actually getting. So, dilate your, you know, play, I, I guess, you know, look at it like this, play with the information that you're receiving and everything and with the different variables, you know, the interdependencies between those variables. You change time. You can't make the assumption that all other equations change at the same time. Light in itself is uh, contingent on E equals MC squared, if I'm not mistaken. And, and E equals MC squared is a measurement taken over time. What happens to the rest of the equation if you start, if you decouple C from T? Just a thought. Anyways, I'm going to dive into